and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here for another film roundup of the last month or so. Films we've seen in cinema and streaming services for this roundup. I am joined by Scott Brosnan was best armor. Simba, it's to die for. <laughs> Gordon shaken, possibly stirred Webster. Good afternoon, Mr. Hammond. <laughs> Steve, all about the danger wheel, McCall. <laughs> <laughs> and Fran, a dick for a dick, Murphy. <laughs> yo, yo, yo. <laughs> yep, thank you, guys. Yep, we're joined. We're. Uh, Obviously, returning from the, the last month or so, there's been a fair few films out. We've uh, tried to see as many as we can, really, given the circumstances with life, I suppose. Um, but before, actually, before we go into that, I did, there's actually been quite a few notable, um, unfortunate deaths in the film industry. And so we'll just give a very brief tribute to some of these, some of these well-renowned uh, industry stars and, and composer as well. So I think we'll start with James Cann, who died at the age of 82 uh, on the 6th of July. Now, obviously, my... Um, you know he's a academy award nominated star huge film back catalog um and i know him from obviously um, the godfather uh you know sonny corleone his main role in that fantastic performance in that and he cameoed in the second one as well and uh yeah what's you know uh, misery and elf as well these roles guys what's your do you have much memories of, of james can Quite limited, I suppose. Um, really, really just Godfather, and yeah. obviously the. I think it's a flashback Godfather Part Two, but for a supporting character, he's uh, he. It's such a celebrated role. He was yeah. such a. Well, obviously, going to another who sadly passed away recently, Steve. But um, like uh, one one of the most intimidating gangster yes types in any of these films for such and not even obviously not even the starring role, uh, just um. And completely believable, um, just such a screen presence, yep, and yep. such a, a long career. Even I think he was, although I've not seen a lot of it, he, was, he did have you know some TV roles in recent years, I'm sure, as well. Oh, yeah, his, his list of um, you know, the, the roles throughout his career is exhaustive, um, you know, all the way through from the 60s to 70s. I think he slowed down after the really the 80s and a bit more selective with his roles um but at that point he's you know household name and he was known for playing tough guys wasn't he that was that was his thing a fiery per, um, personality i think uh and and the godfather you know sonny is he steals so many of the scenes um and he was he was perfect in that in that role i like him in misery as well in 1990 um you know that film He's obviously he's a victim in that film. Um, it's a different role, um, but he, again, he's compelling as the lead as well at this point. Because for me, he does you know he's mostly a, the supporting character, isn't he? But in, in Misery, he is kind of one of the well. I suppose it's a, a dual performance really with Kathy Bates. But um, yeah, terrific. And of course, then there's the comedic side of him. The later stuff with Elf, like again, one of I'd say it's it's up there as my top two or three Christmas films. And I think he's really good in it with uh, alongside Will Ferrell. Um, yeah, James Cann. Uh, so sadly, he passed away at the age of 82. And of course, again, another mafia. That's actually a bit of a recurring theme, actually, with these these um, 
you know people that, that, that have died recently we had Ray Liotta we, we spent some time discussing Ray Liotta on the, in the podcast last month and now we've got Tony Sirikos uh, Tony Sirico, yeah. Sirico, yeah. yeah died at 79 on the just two days later on the 8th of July and I, I hadn't realised he was in Goodfellas he was obviously a very small part wasn't he <clears throat> was it Tony Tony Stacks Tony Stacks I think yeah yeah he was in so many around that that big era of gangster films he was in so many of them in small roles because he I think did he not did Sirico not come from a background where oh. he, he almost he, got involved or he, slightly he was, he, was a con- he, was, he was in jail he was a convict his life starts as you know, a, you know a burglaries and, and thefts and assaults and all these kind of he did four years I think in prison and then I think an acting troupe sort of approached him and sort of showed him that this might be something for him and, and that is exactly what happened he actually caught the bug and has decided to I think it was actually I can't remember if it was a mob family member or someone who's connected who sort of found out about him and pushed for him to get a role obviously with Italian American uh, heritage obviously he was probably pigeonholed for a lot of these roles but it worked in a way and it got him into loads of the mafia once you're he's in uh, he obviously loved that and that became his career and yeah the, the Sopranos of course we haven't mentioned it yet as to me that's where I really became familiar with him you know Polly is a terrific character and I love that I didn't know this he only agreed to. He, I think he uh, auditioned for um, Junior, the Tony's uncle, but didn't get it. And then he was offered the part of Polly, and only he said he'd only do it <laughs> if he didn't become a rat, <laughs> which just seems so like he's so genuine, like takes it so seriously. There's no way I'm gonna do the part if he's a rat. So, yep. Yeah, um, uh, Probably. The most entertaining character, I would say, of the Sopranos, he was an ever-present, really, and I just, I loved all of his idiosyncrasies. He played, see, he played comedy very well, but yeah. he looked like an intimidating gangster at the same time. But he had, um, he had his sort of like standards of cleanliness and he uh, his own sort of personal etiquette. But at the end of the day, he he was all about the mob etiquette. It's all about loyalty. You, uh-huh. He would never turn his back on on Tony, no matter what. Um, so there was there was a lot of layers to his character, but like thoroughly entertaining. Definitely, and he'll his facial expressions and the Sopranos are just god tier. Like the kind of the constant kind of almost I don't know what you call it. It's like a it's like a frown. If that, do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it was something about his eyes, they, I think. Ah, uh, but when they re, I'm sure when they recast uh, his character, obviously young Polly for the many cents in New York. <laughs> it's like obvious that the the actor who's trying to play him is putting on this fake kind of like frown or doing something with his oh, are you thinking of um Sil uh Silvio? Well Silvio and Polly kind of yeah they were both recast. Polly was Polly's like the one with the grey hair at the sides. So Silvio's the one with the right the right kind of pursed lips and kind of frown sort of sort of thing. Yeah I think it's Silvio ah, Fran, just to let you know, you're making a lot of noise. I don't know if you're rolling cigarettes or something. I'm just hearing a lot of oh, like. Can you hear that? Yeah, your mic's picking up. Your mic picks up everything. Remember? All <laughs> oh, right, okay. So it's just to let you know. Um, right, okay. Well, uh, so yeah, of course, Tony Sirico died aged seventy-nine. Um, Gordon, this would be one that you're probably a bit more uh, familiar with. Monty Norman sadly passed as passed away at the age of ninety-four 
uh, on the 11th of July, again, only three days later. Um, and obviously his, you know, his main thing that we all know Monty Norman for was the originator and creator of the, the Doctor No theme song, which is essentially the James Bond theme. Um, you know, looking into, it, uh, you know, John Barry kind of re- kind of redone it but it does a lot came from that original monty norman version i don't know if you want to just discuss monty norman very briefly as well and his legacy yeah yeah monty norman i think he was well known before the james bond films came out as a as a theater um production guy did like did music for a lot of musicals and yeah he's he's a composer of the original James Bond theme that we all know, one of the most iconic pieces of music in cinema history. And obviously you even see it in video games and all, all sorts of things. It's, it's uh, uh, you know, and it all came from, I think it was, I'd mentioned it to you guys in the past, an abandoned, I think it was an ab- abandoned um, production for one of his stage shows called A House for Mr. Biswas. And that formed, if there's actually a recording, you can get it on YouTube and various other places. And it, that the James Bond theme was taken from that. It was a song that wasn't that was in a drawer somewhere, and it was. I think it's been acknowledged that John Barry essentially arranged it for Doctor No and um, gave it the the style and the you know the arranged like what instruments were going in each place and you know brought it to life as it were. But Monty Norman was, and this resulted in in a libel action or a couple of libel actions. Um, later in his life but um like an incredibly talented composer i would also say one thing that does probably get forgotten with monty norman as well as being the composer of the bond theme he he was also the composer of the soundtrack for dr no the first bond film and although it's maybe not the most memorable it it probably formed it gave a template maybe for john barry to adapt to later ones and after john barry you had guys like david arnold etc coming in so um like it must have been that, that soundtrack for Doctor No, underneath the mango tree, there's a certain iconic flavour to that as well. Maybe maybe the sense of um, the exotic feel that became so much a part of the Bond franchise, a lot of that originated from that. So that often gets forgotten. So an outstanding composer in his own right. And uh, yeah, I think he lived a, a very long life, died at the age of 94. Yeah, tremendous life. And uh, one of the one of the things if you could say you're the creator in a sense of the james bond theme as much as you can look into it between the, it's a bit of a collaboration in a sense but certainly the main originator i would say um that's a tremendous feat it's one of the you know it's one of the most iconic film soundtracks and scores of all time uh, and theme songs so yep uh, 94 monte norman and f- the final uh recent death we've um only just really heard this in the last few days paul sorvino died uh, age 83 on the 25th of july again the uh, good fellas connection here he uh was paul Polly, and uh you know looking into him he played a lot of mafia roles as well in his career as well as uh, sort of law enforcement um kind of authoritarian authority roles but looking into it, he sort of he made a comment actually he kind of suggested that he was a little fed up with being typecast and he actually is sees himself more as a poet a sculptor an opera singer i think i read as well which is fantastic to read. and and just looking at his portrayal and goodfellas like i love it um as much as he is clearly uh very menacing character in the sense that he's kind of the boss of these 
um the the lead characters that we're following um henry hill and things like that he's actually got a bit of a soft nature to him still a bit of a cuddly yeah. kind of thing which is a weird yeah. dichotomy yeah. isn't it um but you anyone's thoughts on on paul sorvino yeah again very talented guy uh very intimidating look mm-hmm. which uh you know probably probably one of the most memorable to me one of the most memorable intimidating looking gangsters which i mean probably forms the basis in a lot of people's heads of how mobsters are uh this boss type character i mean you see if you watch a series like the sopranos and the many saints in york must have been ultimately influenced by this as well if it wasn't for films like goodfellas and characters like um what what was his name by polly um that you wouldn't have had programs like the sopranos so the sopranos takes so much from from that film and so much influence from the characters of that film that's probably why you have that probably formed a lot of Tony Soprano's characteristics. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the main thing I know him from. I, I thought he was brilliant in Goodfellas. Yeah. No, was, weirdly um, enough, he appeared in Star, a Star Trek The Next Generation episode as a guest star. Oh, yeah, really? Um, wow. in, in the 90s, he was um, he played um, well the character of Worf that was in the show, the Klingon guy. He was brought up on Earth by a Russian family. And... Um, Sorvino played his brother, the like stepbrother, like the human brother, um, and it was a really odd. It was really a really strange role. Like you talked about the cuddly thing, it was really interesting because the brother was like an anthropologist who was studying an alien race and fell in love with a woman on the planet, and then broke all these rules to get these people off of the planet because there was some environmental disaster. And I, I was, th- I, I remember watching it fairly recently. Well, not recently, but like after watching Goodfellas and being like. Oh my god! This is this is the same actor, you know. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, but um, it's funny. It's it's always funny when you see sort of. I suppose he, he would be a character actor, wouldn't he? You know, you've got your. Is that what he would be described as? Yeah, I mean, I think he was a lead in like two films or something. But his majority of his career, he was a character actor. He was a supporting yeah. role. So, but I always find it interesting when you see character actors that have appeared in massively iconic films and things like that appearing in, in other shows yeah you know but he put in a good good performance it was a great great episode yeah yeah probably the best actors are the most versatile you look at somebody like harrison ford or i don't know it's probably better examples than that um maybe yeah. sean connery people like that yeah i remember him he was in uh, the rocketeer i don't know if anyone's seen that he no. was, yeah, uh, gangsters versus Nazis. <laughs> mob, mob boss, and it's funny you should say about, it's almost like the bad guy with the morals, because in that he does play the mob boss, um, but when he realises that he's he's doing the dodgy work for a Nazi, it's like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to draw the line there. I'm not doing any work for Nazis. Um, he was really good on that. I'm sure he played the dad. I'm sure he played the head of the Capulet family in mm-hmm. uh, Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Forgot about that. He did, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, Paul Savino as well died aged eight, uh, 83 on the 25th of July. So quite a sad, uh, sad month for, you know, the, the film industry in that sense. There's quite a fair, um, you know, that's sad losses all round. But of course, we have to do impossible pivot and talk somehow positively. Well, maybe on maybe we should do an episode like just called Death Cast, <laughs> where we just talk about all the people that have died and we do it separately. Well, like we just do an episode. Could you imagine that? Yeah, the like death cast, celebrating deaths. Maybe a bit too depressing, but hey, we'll. we'll I was going uh, to say, 
coupled with Steve's fucking monotone voice, I yeah. think I don't think I could handle that level of <laughs> depression. <laughs> hey, I'm trying, all right. Okay. Uh, so that yeah. nasally, nasally monotone. No, I'm kidding. Man. If you want to host, if I'll give you it then. Uh, <laughs> right. Okay. So. <laughs> Well, obviously, we've got, uh, you know, we've got a fair few films we want to kind of go into a bit more depth on what we've seen in the last month. Uh, I'm thinking we can start with Lightyear, Scott. So Lightyear is, God, it's really difficult not to get into spoilers. Um, Try I take not. It no one, I take it no one's seen it on the uh, on this forum, no? No. Just nope. me. So Lightyear it's a strange one it's a prequel but it's it's like a so obviously we all know Toy Story we all know Woody is a toy right Lightyear is the film that Woody is based on is it not is Buzz Lightyear sorry Lightyear is the film <laughs> that, that Buzz, wow. Buzz Lightyear's made on well that job aye. of hosting aye. you just got is now demoted yeah. um, oh, um, that was a classic I was just picturing Woody <laughs> flying about the galaxy <laughs> So I'm I'm going to pitch a new thing to Disney. It's going to call the 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 Toy Story multiverse, in which Woody turns into and all that kind of stuff. No, I'm kidding. Um, so yeah, so this film is basically the action hero who the toy Buzz and the film that Andy falls in love you uh, love with is based on. Um, <laughs> this is a classic. Like, listen, I, I I love see these these eras so far. They have been golden. Love, love you or sounds like a, a Bond, yeah. a Bond girl. That's going to be the. That... <laughs> Would he love you? <laughs> right, it's a like, like that, in fact, that's going to be the name of the the multiverse. Would he love you? Um, listen, this film is this film looks outstanding, like a technical marvel. Um, the animations look tremendous. The vistas, the it's just it just looks so good. It's it's what you would expect from a a, a Disney Pixar in twenty twenty two. The the bit that disappointed me the most is like any Disney, even any Disney animated or even Disney Pixar. Whether you want to say it's inspirational, heartfelt, or whatever, I think you all know what I'm going to say when I say you've got that sort of Disney magic, that sort of magic touch where it's like you walk away with it, you feel that kind of warm, fuzzy feeling, if that makes sense. This just didn't have that, and that's the disappointing thing about Lightyear, considering it's considering it's the backstory from the toy that we all love in Toy Story. Um, as I say, looks-wise, can't be faulted absolutely amazing uh, Chris Evans does a really good job I thought in, in terms of standing in for Tim Allen who wasn't recast um, which I think they kind of get round I didn't, uh, there was there was a big I think there's a I wouldn't say big but I did, definitely an I did see comments yeah. online about the sort of furor over the fact that Tim Allen wasn't cast Why was there any reason given for that? It depends how far you go down the rabbit hole People have suggested it's because he's a big Trump supporter and there's all the kind of political side of things. Me personally, I, I don't think it is. I think it's just like they've obviously done a they've obviously got Chris Evans doing the Marvel films. He's a huge uh, leading actor, and I think they've just thought let's just you know let's just get someone kind of relevant in if I, that makes I sense, which is really harsh. Yeah, on I, I don't think it's the Trump thing. I have to say, like you know, I did wonder about that, but 
Um, when you look at, I mean, there's loads of actors that are like, you know, like support Trump or support Biden or Biden or whoever, and they just still have roles. So I think, like James Can, who we just spoke about, was a Trump yeah, exactly. Well, the, the, the interesting thing is that I think it's more that like you'll see folk get lambasted on Twitter for saying things or whatever, but it doesn't. Usually, you'll get booted out of movies. It'll be like the Johnny Depp Amber Heard thing or something like that. Like. Like it's too hot to handle, or whatever, like that sort of thing. So, well, I think uh, Ezra Miller's trying his absolute best at, at this moment in time. I don't. I, I, I mean, I, th- I think it was a shame that they didn't have Tim Allen. I did. I haven't seen the film, but I, I do get that they were tr- obviously they're trying to appeal to kids now who know. Yeah, you know they know the voice of and and Captain America, I suppose, is your kind of modern day analog film wise of like your 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 hero guy isn't he like you're you're sort of all american yeah. kind of guy like that's yeah. what buzz lightyear effectively is it's like yeah i heard he's good that, as well does he actually do a, a voice that no, I think, is similar yeah, to I, th- I think he's good i think he does he, he, you can definitely get because again the thing is you've got the tim allen buzz lightyears which are very don't you know but i think i think the way that they, i mean they obviously don't they don't you know, reference this in the film, but I think what they're trying to get you to do is is that the Buzz Lightyear voice is the toy of the film. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's, ne- yeah. it's never going to be an exact, you know, the toy has to sound like... Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Has to, you mean, yeah. So they don't reference that, they don't set that up, but for me, when I was watching it, I wasn't sitting there watching the film going, this, this would be this film would be better if it was actually Tim Allen's voice. See, it seems to me like the um, Tim Allen's voice is Buzz Lightyear. It's so, like, hard to imitate. It's, like, it's similar to, like, we um, say, like, Peter Weller's Robocop. It's like, and then another yeah. actor does it following the second Robocop. It's like, um, would anyone ever come close to that sort of iconic first one um that's what i imagine but maybe maybe yeah that's, a, if I you look at the way you're looking at it maybe cadence, it's not so bad there's a cadence that's yeah. really difficult to actually match he's i don't know if his voice is quite deep or something is it quite yeah, so I, think, I don't think it, i think it's fine i don't think it sounds you know if 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 it was someone like say they cast chris rock right <laughs> chris, chris, you know chris, chris rock's got such a you know unique voice he would sound nothing like the buzz. He would, he would sound nothing like what you would expect Buzz Lightyear to sound like. So, can you can you do an impression of Chris Rock saying to Infinity and Beyond? What would that I even mean, sound like? I mean, it's gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounded more like. Uh, <laughs> it was a GI Jane joke. Uh, that, was a, that was a bit better. <laughs> That's probably why he didn't get involved. They thought he would record. He would make jokes about Will Smith's wife. <laughs> Very specific. Chris, can you just read the page as it is? He knew, he knew Will wouldn't be there in the audience watch. Well, right, Chris, Chris, it's fine. We all know you've got a problem with people with alopecia. Yeah. You don't need to keep driving at home. It's fine. They've not got yeah, yeah. Keep your Keep your hair on, Chris. Keep yeah, your hair on, Chris. <laughs> so, so, no. Yeah, I, yeah so, that, so Chris Evans, I think, does a, does a good enough job. Um, uh, didn't offend me one bit. And as I say, he, that wasn't the part of the movie where... Um, wasn't it wasn't the the critique of the film where I thought yeah it missed Tim Allen's voice and it well, it was an obvious miss put it that way I think it's kind of a shame for Tim Allen himself, um but moving with the times I guess um and I get yeah so I, I think to to without getting into the plot details and stuff um 
I, I, do you know what? The, the way the film's set up, it, you, you're obviously meant to, like any Disney Pixar film with the writing, you're meant to care for the lead character. You're meant to care when something happens, when it is that emotional, when it's pulling on the heartstrings. Unfortunately, for the character of Lightyear, I, I, I didn't care for him. I didn't. Uh, and when so when the, the twists and turns happens and when the heartstrings begin to pull, I've seen them happening before they happened and it never had that sort of effect like, you know, Simba can picking pieces of his dad up after being trampled by wildebeests. You know, that's the stuff that kind of hits you hard. It, as I say, it doesn't have to be Pixar. It's just that kind of Disney magic. And then, you know, never had it for me. I think the, the comedic beats from Taika Waititi and the supporting cast, again, it just didn't hit. And I think that was more so to the writing as opposed to the to the voice actors. I think all the voice actors done really well. Um, so there was... Does Taika Waititi, I'm worried that Taika Waititi is going to get a little, his stick is starting going to become a bit too obvious, like it's going to become a bit oh, stale, like yeah. his kind of, that kind of style of comedy. Well, what I thought was, it didn't, Taika Waititi, I, I, I think, Waititi, Waititi. Waititi. After him playing Korg in Thor Love and Thunder, Korg was a brilliant character, right? And this, I think they're just trying to, I think that they think that the comedic beat is actually the way he delivers the line, as opposed to what the line is. Right. Does that make sense? Kinda. So it's kind of the way he says it. It's his kind of quirky voice, but but the but the the joke isn't funny. Hmm. But the way he says it, it's almost as if they're trying to make it funny because it's him that's saying it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So most of the as I say, and it's disappointing because, as I say. I think the film would have been good. It's just, it, it all comes back to that writing. And listen, very difficult when you're basically trying to write the the back, the origin story for one of the most loved characters in the Pixar. It's film history. Is, you know? is light, like, are we going to get a, another film that's the origin story of Woody? Like a, 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 an actual cowboy story or something? The problem is, the problem is by doing this, right? And then Rex. Then, and then Rex. Oh, and then the dog. And like, <laughs> you can pick any of them. <laughs> but the thing is, is that, um, well, the film I want to see is the origin stories for all the toys that are in. Um, Sid, who's the kid? Sid yeah. I want to see the origin story for all those yeah, toys. I, I want to well, see I the film Sid, and it's just aye, that aye. story. <laughs> aye. Um, so yeah, very difficult. And again, you're dealing with one of the best, one of the most loved characters, you know, ever. The way that they, so again, it's kind of like Star, it's kind of like Star Wars prequel stuff, and and anything that comes after the Star Wars, it's very difficult to write for stuff like that because you kind of know what's going to happen in the future. I think with this, they added a few bits and bobs. There's a character which I won't mention because I, I don't think it's spoiler, but it's 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 nice just to watch it. Yeah, don't you know, yeah. Without, without getting higged up. However. The character that's in that, you cannot tell me that in the world that Andy's in, you would not have that toy as well. Like, easily almost steals the show in this film. So there's wee things like that that's like, mm, mm. that would you know, you get the scene in Toy Story where Andy goes in with the, to the to this toy shop and it's just Buzz Lightyear's head, you know, floor to ceiling with Buzz Lightyear's. You cannot tell me that this 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 character wouldn't be on those shelves because he easily steals the show. Okay. And that's all I'll say on that. So, so yeah, dis- disappointing in terms of the. Um, uh, and I'd, I'd probably just say the writing, um, and and the and just missing that sort of 
that sort of Disney magic type thing. Other thing I would mention is sorry, only go. Steve. I was going to say the only thing was just before you say it is to me it seems like a flawed concept. Buzz Lightyear doesn't seem like the film that is the lead. Like he's better as the supporting character. Like that film was an ensemble piece, but you know Woody was the main. And I just I think they've focused on maybe a character that doesn't deserve maybe but th- th- there's maybe ways you can do it the writing could have worked so it's obviously it's, they haven't it, been able to do it well, it's interesting that you say that because he almost that he that it almost happens in this film as well right he okay. almost be, he almost become and that's what i'm saying where oh, with that comes dyna- a side character in his own film yeah right. when it's, it's a film, and with that dynamic you really still should feel for him you should sympathize with him and empathize with him and all the stuff that's happening but you just don't yeah so then oh, so then yeah. when he when he gets mm-hmm. that you know the Disney turn where it's the realization of oh, I need to do this to help my friends because I'm not a dick. You know, it's when 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 the turn happens, it's kind of like yeah. Uh, Listen, uh, um, you know, I was going to say the thing I can't understand is how the people in the world of Toy Story made a movie that looked more realistic than reality itself in that world. <laughs> well, that's my main question. I because think you could do you could do more with a spaceman. You could with a cowboy. Did a Woody film? Yeah. I would, yeah. I just thought. I mean, don't get me wrong. Go see it. I, I think the 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 techn- it's a technical marvel. You know, the animation is out of this world. So I think for that, I think it still falls into some of these. You know, the prequels and even some of the sequels we're getting now. Did it really need to be made? I I don't, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. What was your it doesn't sound like. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say it doesn't sound like the kind of film that anyone asked for, which is the one thing that I still haven't seen. I'm not sure I will see it because it it doesn't sound to me as though there was anyone, you know, there's loads of prequels that people are legitimately screaming out for and they picked Buzz Lightyear. I've always just found that odd. Yeah. I don't, I I generally, prequels for me are, I just don't find the the thought of them interesting. The general concept of a prequel, I find, I just don't know, unoriginal usually, and it can usually ruin something that is already quite good. But saying that, strange one again. I don't, I don't even know if it. I suppose it falls into prequel, but well, it's a different. This is different, isn't it? It's not really prequel. It's It's a side story of a character, origin origin story, story, yeah, Yeah. of a fictional character. Uh, Anyways, what's your what's your rating for this film? I'm so decisive because. I think rating it a three would be would I think it's I don't think it would be given the credit to the to the technical and the you know the animation side of things. Like, can you qualify recommendation this? Could you say go and see it for those, or is that not still enough to see it for the sort of the aesthetic of the film, the music, if the music any good or anything like that, or is, like it, for is me, it still not very good that you would give it a two? I think I, I probably would have to give it a four. It would be the weakest. Oh, you've four got would, four, right? Okay. I would probably give it. Well, I don't really like giving half stars. No half measures on here, Steve. You know what I'm talking about. But I think a three is really. I don't know. I don't know if a three does it enough justice for for how it looks. Um, but it certainly for the audience, I don't think this this appeals to to likes of me and and people as I think when my wee one is a few years older, she'll watch this. She'll love it. Okay. But I think for me, for me as an adult, it kind of gives it, it kind of taints the it, it kind of taints what then Toy Story is because now I think I watch Toy Story and I'll have now questions over why that wasn't included because it was in Lightyear. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. Okay. Uh, so a low four for Lightyear. So a, a low Lightyear. four. Yep. Jurassic Park Dominion, Fran. You've seen this film, haven't you? Yep. I watched that um, fairly fairly recently. Um, I don't know, man. <clears throat> Fran, 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 just just say what you feel. 
because I'm gonna I'm gonna say exactly what I feel about this film. Well, I would expect that actually. I would. Uh, don't, <laughs> uh... don't don't mince your words now. Come on. It's an, I'll start out by saying that it's it's an attempt to it's clearly an attempt to bridge the worlds of the initial three Jurassic Park films with the the second set of three and to kind of put them into the one universe, which we already knew. There's an element of nostalgia trip there, <clears throat> trying to kind of bring in the two sets of fans to to watch the film. That being said, with having especially with having watched the original Jurassic Park again. <clears throat> What you realise when you're watching Dominion is that you are that there are no stakes anymore in movies. Everybody's going to be okay. The people that die, you don't really care about. The it's just, it's all about the spectacle and the roller coaster ride, like Scorsese says. It's you know where Jurassic Park was a well written, well crafted story with stakes and 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 creativity to it, and you didn't really know what was coming next when you first saw it. And even and you can still even appreciate the craft with Dominion. Dominion is just it's a series of cheap and contrived situations that are designed to pluck on the surface level emotions of people that either, well, I would imagine the vast majority of people either do not or cannot or are or, or, or incapable of feeling anything stronger themselves anyway these days. right? And it, and, it, and, and it depresses me because obviously then there's people who will watch with a more discerning eye or with an expectation of quality and be disappointed by it. And and I really get, I'm going back to Scorsese again. Scorsese is a hundred percent correct in what he said. Films have, a lot of films have become nowadays because you're not buying a ticket to see a movie. You're buying a ticket to go on a ride. He was ter- more specific on the Marvel films, wasn't it? Well, the, that, the Empire that, interview kind of came out that, came out but, that but, comment. But that, uh, Scorsese, he, he did, he mentioned the Marvel movies as an example of right. this, but yeah, they but are by no about, means, yeah, yeah by no means the only ones. I mean, it, you know, the stakes are gone, right? I mean, I mean, it's like yeah. it's, 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 there's this idea of right, just get as many dinosaurs as you can on the screen, get as much going on as possible, have them running about wherever it is, right? Dinosaurs run coming out of the flipping woodwork, right, and coming out of caves and coming out of crates and f- on fire creatures flying out the sky and all this kind of thing, right? Whereas, give me a raptor coming out the cables, one goddamn raptor at the right moment, like in Jurassic Park, and it will terrify you, or, you know, a couple of dinosaurs in a kitchen, right? Less is what, more. Uh, exactly, exactly. Back to Mr. Collins, back in high school in English, who said that, he said, listen... <laughs> yes, he coined that phrase, yes. Well, no, well, he, he did He did for us, I mean, in yeah. the sense that it was the first time we ever heard that, but it's so true, it's so true. Um, you know, I, I, I was watching it, and I, I, can't, I, feel, I feel like a miserable old git sometimes, and I think... And actually, to be honest, I'm glad I've got other things to talk about. I'm happy about that are more modern, right? After this, but I watch films like this, and I just think to myself, "Why are you doing this? Where are these writers coming from? Who are these people? Who? What Fran, is going on?" Do you know why they're doing it, Fran? Because nine hundred and twenty-five million at the box office. That's why. For this film, or was that for the first? That one? is fucking Jurassic World Dominion. Nine hundred and twenty-five million. It's not yeah, the writers. It like the, it's not the writers. It's the problem. It's it's us. <laughs> Fran, we're, going and, we're going and we're paying money to watch this utter. But shit. how many how many people are going to see it because they actually like the idea of the film, and how many people are going to see it just because they've Park. seen the previous film? Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. it's just, oh, I saw that film twenty years ago. I want to go and see this one. But the thing is, it's, though, this is the third film in this sequel trilogy, which I think is poor. Like <sighs> Jurassic World, the one that came out in what twenty. 17 2016 yeah. i did not like that film one bit 
I really was so annoyed with that film. Its sequel is only marginally better, only because it leans in on how stupid it is, almost. I know. And it's I mean, I, 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 Jurassic World, right? You know, it lost me from the start, right? But I remember, I remember, you know, there are moments in your life, right, where you put your head into your hands, right? Um, <laughs> and it's with movies, it's with seeing things or whatever. But I remember the bit in Jurassic World where the woman was running in high heels from a T-Rex. And I was mm. just sitting and I just slowly, my head went into my hands and I just was like, what the, what the fuck am I watching here? Yeah. The what is this? Turned a T-Rex into a superhero. But, exactly that as well. But, but, but something as simple as, High heels running away from from a monster, a gigantic monster. Oh, here's the, here's here's the thing about the Jurassic World that just falls flat, right? And it kind of and, and as I say that for me these these three films, especially that last one, it's just trying to it's just trying to cancel out whatever happened before. It's essentially trying to cancel out one of the best films ever in in movie history because Hammond finished that film and the whole time it was like no, the part doesn't work. It's not going to be a success. Jurassic World, nah. Who cares what happened before? Let's just fucking build the park and get everyone in. And I even, the... even reference it, and it's like, this is already flawed. You've got a really half-arsed version of Hammond being the owner who knows it, but it's still just all that sort of, nah, it'll be fine and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just well, that, So the... That's the thing. I mean, at the end of the original series, the original trilogy, right, the whole idea was... Um, you had the park that was a disaster, and then you had Site B that was then turned into a kind of a nature preserve, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And basically, the dinosaurs were just left there, right? So that that was a perfect way to. I mean, okay, the Lost World and Jurassic Park Three were not by any means perfect films, but it was probably you know it was a, they were far better at wrapping it up, I suppose, and leaving it in a plausible place where like the U.S. Navy would be guarding an island with dinosaurs on it to make sure they didn't get away. Yeah, That's exactly I agree. what would happen. I think. I agree. And yeah. if, I, if I may, I'm Fran. I just wanted to ask you: Does it do it? It brings back the three main leads from Jurassic Park. Obviously, Sam Neill, Jeff Goldblum, and Laura Dern. Does it do them a disservice? I mean, how are they in the film? Do you think if you look back at how great the characters were in Jurassic Park, do you now um, think well they've sort of ruined them a little well, bit? Or? Did you know it's funny actually because their bits, the bits that they were in, some of them were actually a bit more down to earth. Right, so uh, you you know, and there was some good character moments there. Um, n- nowhere near enough to rescue the film. I think I would say that they wrote the scenes with those characters in them. All they were passable and and they were believable as those characters. Right, I don't think they did them a disservice in the way that they were mm. written those characters, but I do think that it was a disservice to the characters to have them in the film at all. Mm. In that in that whole thing, if that makes sense, yeah. it was nice. It was nice to see them again. But the thing is. It's kind of cruel because we love those characters and they know that we're going to want to see them again, even though the rest of it will be crap. Do you know what I mean? That goes back to what Steve McCall was saying. Well, obviously, um, Steve, Scott and Steve kind of said two different things. Well, made it made, riffed off each other's points. So Scott was saying, well, it's because of the box office results. And Steve was saying people are going to want to go and see it because of the, you know, that's it. You know, I wouldn't have watched that film if it wasn't for the fact that the three were in it. Yeah, I think I think for me it was more morbid curiosity to see what what happened um, out of anything. Like, I mean, this film for me. Well, here's here's one thing, right? So they make they make Malcolm a parody of the character he is in in the first one. I so mean, you, you could expect this is exactly what happens when characters replay themselves years later. Yeah. Friends, done to, it. even as a series extent, that ran currently. I mean, to an extent, I, I do think that. Grant and Sattler were better 
written. It's a better and, yeah, I would agree. Written. Yeah, yeah. Then um, Jeff Goldblum. Then, uh, his later career, he has become almost a parody of himself. He overacts now a little. There's a bit more improv going in. I think his better performances were his earlier stuff. He's good in some things. I'm not, you know, I don't have much bad things to say about Jeff Goldblum, but he is a little over the top more than he needs to be. I think now. He's playing himself in the film. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's necessarily a criticism of him. Again, it just comes back to the writing. I think a lot of these modern films we have to go down the route of self-referential against this, the, the content that happened before. So, for example, there's a scene in this film, this isn't, well, it's not necessarily spoilers, but they make a they make a kind of ode to the joke about him unbuttoning his shirt, right? Now, that was never brought up in the first film. It yeah. was popular culture. So it's like, you're, mm. you're, you're making a joke, you're writing a joke about popular culture or whatever. It's like, why is that canon? Why are you writing that in this film? This is ridiculous. It's so bad. Yeah, but I would I would agree with Fran. Like I'd probably say Laura Dern out of all of them was was probably portrayed the best. Grant second, but I think I think the bits were I think the bits where Goldblum was with the other two, he was better. It was when he yeah. was on his own doing things. It was a bit weird, right? But when he when the <laughs> three of them got together again, like there was an earlier part in the film where they were the three of them were together, and that was quite good. And then later on, they were together again, and it was good. And the chemistry of those three actors together mm. works. So and it's am- yeah. it's amazing to see it. It's, sorry, Steve. It's amazing to see that on film, right? Because you've got and I and I do agree. As bad as I think this film is, the chemistry between those three on screen it's crazy. Even though the writing is is pretty poor, even just the acting is so much better than the than the new group. I was just about to and ask, it, how is this the sort of emergence of the two with this Chris Pratt and? Well, it's okay, yeah. but it's annoying at times, right? Because yeah. there's a, there's a couple of bits. There's a bit where Chris Pratt and Sam Neill walk forward and say something like, "Don't move" at the same time, and it's like, "Oh, oh. God!" So they're signposting to the audience that those two are meant to be analogs of each other. Thank you, writers, for telling us something that is so oh, obvious. Oh God! again, less is more. Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, Another thing, though, about you were talking about less is more. Um, part of the attraction of Jurassic Park was you didn't have to see the park when it's actually open with all the dinosaurs and all the people there to see it. You had that in your just in your mind what it would look like. Part of the attraction was we were trialing it before we open it, so we don't. Sometimes the pre-show is better than the actual show itself. You don't need all that. It's like, and then when it went, it started maybe going too far. As obviously in the Lost World, you're taken out of that self-contained environment when the dinosaur goes to San Francisco or something. Oh, the, oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, that, but that's probably not too bad compared to See, like, what well, it's The Lost World for me is half a good film and then half an awful yeah. film. <laughs> so here's yeah. the thing, Gordon, that's a great point, right? Now, this film is called Jurassic World Dominion and the dinosaurs are loose, right? Yeah, I heard that. So it's about the actual park being open right? or at least... It's, no, there's no park. No, it's there's like, no it's park. the world, yeah, isn't they it? Are, they're actually they loose, are loose on the world. Right? Yeah. Now, Here's the thing, that could have been set up so well. Where do we spend the majority of this film? In a fucking jungle. Mm-hmm. Like, well, what, I mean, that why, might not why, be a bad idea. If... Why are we... Like, we have one decent scene where Chris Pat's riding a, a motorbike through a, a town. I can't remember why. There's also a scene where it, it kind of turns into like a scene in Star Wars, like Tatooine, where it's like this trading <laughs> dinosaur thing. Like, Fran, I don't, I don't I know, know if you picked up on that. It I was know, just... I know. I'm like, I what am I watching? I, I, was, expecting was, can, I was expecting the can. I was expecting the cantina. Honestly, I, I was like, I was expecting the music to start playing 
This now seems like a Star Wars film. Bonkers, absolute bonkers. But we spend the majority of the time. Now there's a couple of there's a couple of cool scenes. Bryce Dallas Howard's got a really cool scene when she has to hide from a dinosaur, right? So again, no spoilers. But I thought that bit was okay. was was cool, right? Um, but again, you, you, these dinosaurs are they're out, they're free. Jeff Goldblum set it up in the last film, and even this one, and it's like we just don't see it. I know, but also here's the thing, right? This is another thing. And about the less is more, and about the stakes and stuff, right? So in the first film, it was like you know you had three three raptors, one T Rex, couple of Dilophosaurus or whatever. That you know they were the predators were quite limited in number, right? And uh, the whole idea was one of these things is incredibly dangerous. One mm. of these things is whatever, right? And then you get scenes in Jurassic World with literally hundreds of these things running about all at once, right? But it takes away. You've got scenes in Jurassic World Dominion where. If it happened in Jurassic Park, the film would have been over. They would have been dead, yeah, right? Aye, but in aye. this film, they get away from it or whatever. They get out of it. The dinosaur, it cheapens the impact of the dinosaurs. Now, that to, Gordon, you were saying about less is more, right? Here's something for you as a Bond fan. Imagine a Bond film came out that had every James Bond in it and every villain all at the same well, time, right? I mean, you would be like, you know, it'd be yeah, chaos. I know, you, I know. You know. I've got a better example, actually, Frank, because this is more relatable to Jurassic Park, but I was thinking on a similar wavelength to you. Imagine a masterpiece like Jaws where rather than one shark, there was a big <laughs> shoals of sharks. And imagine not just that, or even just imagine there was one shark, but imagine it was on the screen constantly. It would, uh, yeah, it would completely cheapen the impact. It's because you... And I said it on uh-huh. the Jurassic Park podcast where we all gave it five-star reviews, you know. Uh, there was long periods with... you. There was a very long build-up to you actually saw the first dinosaur, like the first uh-huh. actual like predatory dinosaur, and there was long periods of just the anticipation of it. So yeah, uh-huh. I mean that's exactly what I was oh, thinking. Tension or I suppose if you had like every Jaws film, like Jaws two had two sharks, Jaws three had four sharks, Jaws six or whatever had like like uh-huh. you say a sh- a shoal. I suppose it's, it's like that. But it's like, they used to do parodies. Remember that Sharknado film? Where it was like, <laughs> a tornado would suck all the sharks out of the ocean and the sharks were all flying about the tornado and all that, right? That People used to make joke parodies like that because they could see in those days how ridiculous that idea is. That you well, just right. throw here's more and more need to screen. move on to the ratings. Here's, a, here's another thing. Well, that's right? the thing. Less is more. We're not doing that. Uh, we're, we're following the example of the writers by over-egging the, <laughs> the segment on the movie. Here's here's, here's another thing, right? So very quickly, Fran, I don't know if you pick up on this, but again, I'll not spoil it in case anyone really does want to see this modern masterpiece. (laughs) Imagine having a Jurassic Park film where the dinosaurs aren't actually the threat. Mm, mm. Do you know what I mean by that, Fran? Uh I mean... I do. Like... Uh, It doesn't sound good. Ian Malcolm summed it up. If you want to quote Ian Malcolm from the first film, now that is one big pile of shit. <laughs> there you go. Right, that, that's a good sum up. So, what, what is it? We what is it? We're giving it a score now. Yeah, rating, Fran. What's your rating for this? I'm gonna give it a two out of five. Two out of five, Scott. Same. Two out of five. Okay, two out of five for Jurassic World Dominion. Steve, come to you for Thor: Love and Thunder. <coughs> cool. Yeah. Um, I am uh, becoming the most unlikely MCU correspondent, <laughs> having gone from seeing pretty much none to three in a row now. Um, and it's a bit of a shame to be honest, because this was a disappointment. I'll be honest. Um, have any? Is this a complete? Obviously, I'm not going to spoil anything. But have you guys? Any of you guys seen it at all? No, sorry, no. I have not. So cool. you are the yeah. first to really give your thoughts on it. I think I've heard on the Empire podcast and a couple other places that they were a little down on it as well. So that is yeah. yeah. It's it, it didn't work for me. 
Um, I mean, it's it's obviously meant to be more comedic than the previous films, and that humour just didn't land. I know what you were saying earlier about um, Taika Waititi. Uh, Taika Waititi, yeah. yeah. And I don't know if it's if the style of humour. I couldn't quite work out if they were genuinely going for the style of humour that they used, and it just didn't land, or whether they were trying to be ironic, kind of trying to be sarcastic and take the piss out of that kind of storytelling type of humour and it just didn't land properly well, but was, either yeah, way it was the same in the, the one Ragnarok where, but it towed the line really well but there was points where there was really dark moments that were done so glibly that it could have mm. been more impactful because there were actually really horrible things happening we won't spoil them but um, because it's his style of humour he just plays it off it's a yeah offhand kind of thing but that can be it worked in that film mostly it was fine because the actual film was really good but obviously if you just take it a slightly step further it probably can ruin it i'll let you continue steve and that is exactly what i think has happened here because again it's similar to what we were saying with doctor strange where they tried to go horror they couldn't commit to it because i think they've got to stick to that 12a rating and again there's it was there's points to this that are dark. The storyline is particularly dark. But again, it came across almost sort of 90s comedic, almost sort of child catchery, almost rather than um, actually sort of terrifying like it should have been. And I think it's because, again, they can't commit to it and they tried to inject humour into it. And it just I just don't think it, it worked. And as a result, the actual plot itself felt kind of ridiculous. It's... It resolved itself far too quickly in the end for a start, and the way it resolved itself just felt kind of stupid, to be honest. Mm. Yeah. So it, on a story sort of aspect, it doesn't work. On a humor line, it kind of doesn't work. Like I say, they, they can't commit to the darkness of it. It does feel very kind of sort of very those sort of PG um, bad guys that kind of the nineties that were sort of funny for kids or whatever but this as an adult film doesn't particularly land trying to find some goodness from it i mean it, it sounds great as a film mostly because it's soundtracked entirely by guns and roses but what that does is kind of highlights the fact that there's no actual score for this film they haven't put any work whatsoever into creating any kind of music or any kind of score for it it's, they've, not, they've not even done versions of Guns N' Roses songs. They've literally hit play on Appetite for Destruction. Oh, dear. Um, which, I mean, it, it works because the like one of the main battle is soundtrack. So you're, Steve, you're breaking, up, you're, you're breaking up quite a bit. Uh, your mic's breaking up or something. Oh, shit, is this my internet? I'm going to pause for five seconds and see if this recovers. Uh, it might be my internet connection. Is this any better? Yeah, I mean, you're coming through fine. It was just at certain points. It was like, it was as if you were turned into a robot for a second, but then it would go back. I think, yeah, I think my internet connection is a little slow annoyingly. Um, I'm going to turn the Wi-Fi off my phone to see if that makes a difference. But um, yeah, so like I was saying, the Mm -hmm. the Guns N' Roses soundtrack does sound great, but it draws attention to the fact that there's no, there is no soundtrack or anything for it. And the Thor theme is almost overly simplistic. It's as a superhero theme tune. It just, it doesn't, it's not exciting enough to to ramp. It's not um, yeah complex enough to ramp up any kind of excitement. And there's there's no there's no complexity to the thought. It's kind of a do 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 do. It's like it's been thought by a five year old piano. It just it's it it's not exciting enough. Okay. Um. So overall, I don't think. I mean, obviously, I'm not. It might particularly excite the big mcu fans but again the group of people i went to see it but there are a couple of people who were again big on the mcu 
films, and they they felt the same way. They didn't take it particularly the same way either. Um, so overall, I'm I'm going to say this is a two out of five. Two out of five. Wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Um, it's it sounds this this could be a sort of one that has really misfired um and possibly one of the bigger misfires they've had in recent years they do seem to want us sli- i wouldn't say rocky patch the mcu films but they don't seem to be hitting the same way they were maybe around 2017 2018 it uh, feels like they're churning them out basically they're yeah. not putting enough work into it they're not putting enough i mean which is bizarre considering the budget for these films because i mean I the, the... it looks fantastic but yeah. it's it just feels like they know that regardless of whatever they pump out people are going to go and see it so it's kind of like they they just i don't know they they do it kind of half-heartedly i think i think it's the direction as well i was just going to say i think it's the direction as well because i think the last certainly the last two that i've seen and obviously the the um the reviews the no spoiler reviews that i've read about thor they kind of just feel as if it's like right we need to put this film out it's almost going to come in across like gimmicky like even no way home spider-man it never really moved the plot or any type of story of the of phase Marvel phase four forward for me, like it. it but does it but have was... to though? That would be actually a benefit for me. I sometimes would like a self-contained story. It, if, it, well, if the film works in its own right, that's to me not an issue. But I suppose in the I suppose in the Marvel cinematic universe, which is a huge part of it, it, it and that's obviously why the previous films worked. I, I it, it ticks. It needs to tick kind of two boxes. It's like okay, it's a good standalone movie, but it also it also falls into the kind of wider I, universe. I, I bet with Spider-Man, they don't want to take too many risks with well, they can't, suggesting it, because they know that that's not a character they have real hold over and they may not well, get Spider-Man, right, So Spider-Man might have been a bad example because it's Sony, right? But you, you know what I mean? Even Thor Dark World, which is probably renowned as to being the least um or one of the you know the least good, you want to call it. I don't think it was terrible, but... I thought it was um, fine, but it was one of my first okay, ones I've ever it, seen. What, Aye, so but that's still that's still that's still although you maybe didn't think think about it at the time, that still feeds into Infinity War. Uh, so I mean as a standard you might, film, Yeah, but we don't know. They've just announced the dates in twenty twenty five and uh things like that of the new sort of phase six Marvel films, haven't they? They've announced You know, it dates. kind of amazes me. Like see when I look back and realise that the original Thor that came out in what 2006, 2007, did it? Uh, no, no I think two, the first Iron Man was, Iron 2008. Man was 2008. So, yeah. 2000, two, what so was it? 2008? 20, I think 10 or 11 was Thor. Yeah. Was it? Yeah, because yeah. that was like the fourth film. Was it the third or fourth film? I think it was the third that was after. No, it was the fourth. After. It was Iron Man 1, uh, Hulk. the Hulk, Iron Man 2, and then Thor, and then the Captain America, First Avenger, and then your first Avengers film, which is 2012. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Let's have a look. I want to look that up actually. Cause, ah, see the th- yeah. yeah, see the, see the thing again for me, it's like, it's, it, as Steve said, he's obviously not a big Marvel fan, so he's never seen these previous, but even Steve, as him, he's kind of, he, he, and correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, but you're probably watching this kind of going, all right, okay, but what, what was the point of that? Yes. So, a lot of it, yeah. Yeah. So that was me with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. It was like, right, okay, fun, frenetic, you know, so much happening. Um, but I, I don't understand what the point was. Doctor Strange was in No Way Home. It had no relevance to Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness. What was the point? Why was it there? I don't know. But I suppose standalone films, yeah, No Way Home nailed it. Great standalone film. But again, I was kind of like, I, I'm really not really sure what was the point of that film. Uh, okay, so yeah. 
two out of five for Thor. Uh, that's another two out of five. This is a recurring theme, isn't it? <laughs> I was going to say, man. I mean, that's that's the same. I'm so intrigued to watch this now because that's that's if you're looking at the capiche scoring, that's the same caliber of film as Jurassic World Dominion. <laughs> mm. Right. Oh dear. Gordon, <laughs> we'll come to you for Elvis. Uh huh. <laughs> Yeah, oh, you're like that guy in the cinema. I had to sing along with it. Jesus. Now, um, don't, don't, don't spoil it. If he, I mean, if he dies, right, don't tell us, right? Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a very mysterious. I mean, nobody knows the story of Elvis. Yeah. But, well, that was the thing. I mean, like similar to when it, when I saw the Rocket Man and Bohemian Rhapsody, I was being musicians that um like a fan of and had seen documentaries of before. You know, like I knew the whole story of Elvis and I knew a bit of the stuff about. Colonel Tom Parker, who just to fill you in, he was he was essentially Steve his manager, wasn't he? And he was he was the leader of the the infamous Memphis Mafia, yeah. who were um who kind of like led Elvis as it were. Um, yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. But what I was going to say was, when you know the story, you kind of know what's going to happen. The difference with Elvis was it was Steve kind of told uh, from the point of view of. Colonel Tom Parker played by Tom Hanks, which I guess that's an interesting, different take on it. It's all about, it's mainly focusing on his relationship with Presley. And I mean, it covers a lot of bases a lot in a lot of the, the dramatic things that happened in Elvis's life, his, his rise from the, it is good how it shows him from the early days. It shows him right through his career. It's not skipping past many key points. Um, the cinematography is excellent. Uh, yeah, the, I loved it. Like the feel. Um, yeah. Yeah, what what was your take on it? Because you you did go to see it quite recently, didn't you? Yeah, um, it's similar to yourself. I mean, I I don't know how your overall thoughts were. I really liked this film. I loved it actually. Um, you know, I didn't know. I knew the main beats of Elvis's life, but I certainly didn't know a lot. So there was a lot that I was taking from this film, and I've looked into it, and it doesn't seem to be getting any kind of like criticisms for historical accuracy or anything, which is refreshing to hear obviously it is framed from the point of view of um tom hanks's character is narrating it he's actually the kind of so it's his perspective which is an interesting choice and i think that's some that maybe some critics have actually pointed that that is a strange decision um and it might take away a little from the the focus of the film which is elvis but you know i i, I don't mind it hanks himself he's you know he's got the whole um the fat suit on he's put on an accent it's slightly distracting at first, um, but looking into it, this film's done really well from a box office perspective, and there were statistics given and surveys done, and some of the people said that 25% of the audience went because Hanks was in it. So in some ways, this film is benefiting from the fact that Hanks is your star. So in that sense, you can see why you cast the guy, um, but obviously, uh, and I think he's, he's, he's good in the film. Austin Butler plays Elvis, and I think is the best casting I've seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. I think the, the likeness is uh-huh. superb. Yeah, yep, so absolutely see, terrific. Just, just a quick question on me, guys: Does he sing? He sings, as, or is it is it overdubbed? With no, so Elvis? they initially planned to do it mostly. I think he was going to do it uh, overdubbed. The young Elvis, I think they were going to do it initially in the studio and then just mm-hmm. mime on stage. But I, I think he got so confident with the role and his performance and his singing abilities that he was like, let's actually try this live mm. recording the scene. And actually, so some of the earlier 
uh, sections in the film when Elvis is actually performing. It is actually Austin Butler's voice on yeah. the set on that day kind of thing, which is incredible. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and then the, late, was the later Elvis stuff, uh, apparently uh, that's actually uh, the actual, I think they've used Elvis's actual performance. Mm. So. Yeah, that's what was kind of strange because see right at the very end, Steve, it was, I think the only bit I remember was right at the very end when they were um, really wrapping up the story of Elvis after it spoken about his death. Just big spoiler, he dies, uh, Fran, just let you know. Um, but yeah, it's, it actually had real footage of Elvis, but the likeness was so good with Austin Butler that the first couple of shots I showed you of the real Elvis I thought, I wasn't <laughs> sure. I thought, is that Austin Butler or is it yeah. the real guy? And I looked at the next couple of shots. No, that's real Elvis, but the, that's a bit of a problem there because it's not, maybe that's just me, but it was, uh, it, it, you're left there. It's distracting at that point. I think, well, just not, that final really shot, happened. you mean? Not final shot, but in the last few minutes, it's like, it doesn't, you can't really enjoy it quite the same if you're, it just doesn't, it seems incongruous how, Right, the whole film is is our um like cin- cinematic version of Elvis, and then suddenly we're going to show you the real Elvis. It just kind of sticks out about a sore thumb. But I mean, that's that's a, that's a trope a that a lot thing. of bio- most biographies do. That they always have that little still shot of the guy, or a, a sort of little interview or something to show. Uh, it is something I've noticed a lot of films do. I almost half expect it now. The film, I'd say, if we were to talk, you know, other criticisms where we're sort of honing in on stuff like that it's maybe slightly formulaic i don't know how else you would do these kind of you know musical biography kind of films but it does feel like maybe if you've seen things like walk the line or that there's an element of the structure feels a little similar the rise and the fall all that kind of stuff um, yeah definitely so that's, that's what well, i was thinking. yeah well i suppose it's kind of just they, they, they've kind of just got to cram it in in terms of the actual what actually happened you yeah, know yeah but it's it's you know, just so. that it's not quite as original the way that say like rocket man took things so fantastical that that was quite really creative and that was doing something different with the the story where there's this film it has flair this is baz Luhrmann directing and I've not actually watched a lot of Baz Luhrmann films. Obviously, I think he did Moulin Rouge and, and Romeo and Juliet and stuff like that. He's got a very um, kind of theatrical kind of color palette, bright color palette thing in his career. And again, it works so well. Like some of the cinematography and the design, the costumes are fantastic. And uh, yeah, like mi- mixed with Butler's performance, like the first, there's a scene where he's doing, uh, he's playing to sort of a crowd that don't really know him yet. And he starts, and, and this is a crowd that aren't used to his, this style, that kind of like shaking and things like that. The wiggling is they, they called it. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's just funny that they, I won't, cause it ruins it. But it's, it's one of those things where the crowd's reaction to this, the way that it focuses on certain parts of the crowd is hilarious just because they are so not used to this almost orgasmic kind of response it's a scene that is fantastic and it actually was a reminder of just how big a deal he was like you do kind of forget a little about that as time has went on and obviously controversial mm -hmm. with that because there was big outrage like in the newspapers actually my university dissertation our course covered that that all these newspapers and outrage look at that like it's like 
wiggling his legs in front of all, yeah. all these women. It's it's disgusting. It's terrible. Uh-huh. That was actually there's actual <laughs> historical accuracy there. Yeah, like it's crazy. Like it's it's crazy. Um, you know the 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 lengths they tried to stop him to essentially cancel him back then. That's what happened. Yeah, it was sort of um blacklisted yeah. like they couldn't the people were absolutely shocked at that in the 1950s yeah i think they were banned from filming them from the like, they were only allowed to film them from the waist up <laughs> i think there's a, lot of, yeah. there's a lot of tv shows where he's, he's performing but he's very very close up because they were banned from filming his legs yeah because it was so as you said it was so thrusty and orgasmic that it was they thought it might um disrupt the youth or whatever like the film you know to talk about other things there's some great uh you know it's just a very fun film. It's very funny. It's actually the first half particularly has got a lot of style and humour. I think towards the, the last third, it, that starts to disappear a little. But that maybe reflects the sort of what's happening with Elvis. It's actually quite a sad life in, in the end he has. He was not very, he obviously wasn't too happy and things like that. So the film starts getting a bit more darker. It loses its comedic side. Um, that it had yeah. at the beginning um, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it great performances great um, craft from the direction the uh, cinematography the music the soundtrack of course um, yeah really really thoroughly enjoyed it uh, what would you anything more you want to say Gordon or you want to well I wanted to touch on Tom Parker a bit more mm-hmm. uh, because he is such a main character in it you do one thing that's good is you have the, the big I would say the big twist later on which ups the stakes a bit is the revealing of how he is these massive gambling debts, Parker, that nobody knows about, and he's using Elvis as a pawn to not let him tour abroad and, and make sure he plays in the, this hotel as a, as a residency for show after show just to use him to make money to repay his gambling debts, which like is believed to have been what happened in real life. So, And then he, the, he's so conceited the way he's hiding it from Elvis it, so that you've got that good twist. And also the fact that he has faked his identity. He's not who he says he really is, but... But also, I, yeah, I mean... Sorry, Gordon, you broke up there. Yeah, I was just going to say on... Uh, now with the phone getting put down, that's <laughs> disrupted the signal. Um, on um, Hank's, like, I find that there's something a bit... He's a bit... I think it's something to... I mean, I've seen real interviews of Colonel Tom Parker. They've they've really exaggerated him, I think. Yeah. With, um, with uh, just... I mean, just mostly in terms of his appearances... <laughs> Facial expressions, you've got the sort of fat suits. It's like it's like a he's an absolutely massive. People talk about a double chin. It's like a triple chin, and he's just all. He makes all these shocks, really exaggerated facial expressions. He's always like, you could you'll not be able to see this in an audio podcast. He's always gets such a like such strained expression. There's something so exaggerated, and I just think he's he's so off like and just constantly sweating, constantly like leering leaning over everything else is doing always like there's something a bit sort of grotesque about him that i don't i think is it's maybe a bit distracting i think as well just seeing it in the cinema there was like some bad smell near her the cinema the whole time it's like was that out of date cheese and onion crisps or something like that and it's like seeing that seeing the the film with that like sort of bad smell in the cinema there was, some, there was something a bit sort of was that a 4DX what you went to or something <laughs> it was like oh, that's almost what it was like so it was like um, it just there was something about that whole depiction of an exaggerated Tom Parker I think it was just a bit suffocating at times but um, did you find that at all like it like, seemed a bit too exaggerated he, he always looked shocked he, he, he big blares of fat just billowing out of his face there was something a bit just sort of too much uh, about I think they overdid uh, the, the sort of 
the visuals on the in the fat suit and things like that and maybe he has overacted a little but i also don't know this character very well i don't really know a lot about colonel tom parker so that my first exposure to this is the tom hanks performance so maybe if i was to do what you did and watch other videos of him i might be able to see yeah it's a bit much um so i can't say it was too ruinous to the film but i could probably i think i have heard that comment already and it feels like maybe that's weirdly for someone who they cast purely because he would get people in he may actually be one of the weakest links which is a very unusual thing to say about a tom hanks performance and a tom hanks film but there's so many good things i mean like i said it's they captured that and it's been although he denied it i think till he died i think most people have come to the realization that he was a very conceitful guy who was using Elvis as a pawn to make money for himself. So the the, the way he c- captured the seedy nature of the character was is probably commendable from from Hank's point of view. Definitely, yeah. Like I don't think it's uh, awful in any sa- sense, and I think they try to. I, they didn't really try to give you any sympathy for him. You do not like the the character at all. Oh yeah, because you yeah. know what he's doing, and it's obviously yeah, it's it's uh, pretty awful. What would you give this rating, Gordon? I would give it a four because I think there's still so much to enjoy. But I mean, a lot of that is like is enjoying me enjoying the story of Elvis. I think to have got it closer to a five, one I, I did see already about them maybe exaggerating Tom Parker. But I think I to me Elvis is more of an interesting character than Tom Parker. So I think there should have been a bit more of Elvis to for it to really grab me probably more than like the way the rocket man did yeah i was close to giving this a five as the more i've thought about it it has just missed a five and it's a very high four for me it's it's a really good film i think it's a film i would strongly recommend people to see and you know i hope we haven't <laughs> spoiled anything and so it's not it's not a film you can spoil because it's all it, it follows what happened but well you've ruined it for me because i didn't know that elvis died so. yeah there you go so but yeah i i would agree on the four uh the more i ruminate on it is yeah it misses the five but from a filmmaking point of view the craft is is very well done and the, austin butler like i don't know he, i think he's fantastic in this film i generally think he's yeah. amazing so i think he's a star that we're going to see more often now um, I think I, it's amazing with that. They they got a guy that looked so like him in a similar way, I think, um, in The Rocket Man. Uh, oh, God, I've totally forgotten the actor's name who played Tyler him. Tyler yeah, Tan Egerton. He, again, he, they got the likeness really well. And probably even worse, if you watch the Queen film, Bohemian Rasty, the guys that played Freddie Mercury and Brian May, probably all four of them just the lightness was so good and they got the voices all right as well it's amazing yep i wouldn't i don't think i would say taron edgerton looks like elton john i think of him more with the sunglasses on yeah him. like they, they did they give him the gimmick look and once you've got that look it's ah, right, okay. part of it like but anyways yeah it's not naturally i would say looks like him <laughs> i was gonna say uh ramen ramen like to freddie mercury Aye, that he, was good he looked spot on Aye. yeah yeah okay so four stars for Elvis, and now we come to Scott again for the Grey Man. The Grey Man, the Grey film. I mean, this or uh, should have maybe said perhaps the Beige Man, because uh, unfortunately this film from the Russo brothers is so fast, so frenetic, so C- CGI laden. You would almost think it's a Marvel film, but it's actually not. It's trying to be kind of like a like a john wick it it seems 
Um, well, I'm not going in it. I've not spent too much time lamenting on it, but it's it's just not for me. Um, it's just over two hours. So lead lead uh, character Ryan Gosling, he plays a um, sort of like a a, a criminal turned hitman for the CIA. Um, bunch of stuff happens. He then gets uh, whatever it's called, if you want to call the the John Wick terminology, excommunicadoed, um, and Chris Evans is in this. So Chris Evans easily steals the show in this film. Um, he plays a bad guy, which is actually quite interesting to 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 see. Um, he looks as if Adolf Hitler is a hipster, um, which again is really odd um, to watch Chris Evans the way he looks in this film. Um, but it works, and he's crazy. He's a sociopathic, maniacal hitman who's obviously been tasked to to catch in Ryan Gosling. Um, that aside. Really not a lot of character development. I've never bought Ryan Gosling as the kind of main character. I think he's very, very flat in this film. Um, and again, it's just there's so much emphasis on action, CGI action. Um, it's fast, frenetic. The camera jumps are crazy. I don't know how many major European cities we visit and the Russo brothers and like make it clear to you that every European city we visit, we get the big, massive white capital writing of... Prague is that and like Munich and the Avengers like nowhere exactly, and things like that exactly, yeah. yeah exactly exactly well that's um, James Gunn for Gal- uh, oh, the, Guardians the, of the Galaxy but they did it similar the, to similar, sure. similar to well I suppose James Gunn kind of he kind of started oh did he start it right you're, you're, you're right it, it, it kind of is like that style and even the end of the film so you know how the Marvel films have kind of got the the title um screen at the end where it's kind of like an animated sort of title screen at the end like this film has that and you're kind of going if you're going to make a if you're going to make like a spy sort of hitmanish type game you really need to do it without trying to make it like a marvel film and i think it was a great point that that fran brought up earlier on the the podcast about what scorsese said unfortunately this film falls into that category and scorsese if he watched this film he'd be going oh, is that an action film on Netflix? Mm. I was right what I said then. It's a shame because the Russo brothers, they're, you know, with the Marvel films, certainly, the, that's the films I'm used to them. You know, they're the, the high hitters in this, the entire series. And it's a shame to kind of hear that they've obviously not been able to keep that momentum. I think if you're, if you're listen, see if you're wanting uh, balls-to-the-wall action you know, I wouldn't even say adventure, but if you're watching that sort of action, I'm going to come in from work on a Friday night, turn my brain off, eat an insane amount of popcorn, um, and just watch a just watch a two-hour flick. That's kind of what this film falls into. But I think with the cast for me, and obviously because of the Russos, it's kind of expecting a wee bit more. And as I say, a lot of the a lot of the beats that happen, like for example, Anna de Armas is in this film, and she is wasted, utterly right. wasted. That's a crime. Um, yeah, utterly wasted. Billy Bob Thornton and Ryan Gosling have got decent chemistry, um, but again, it's just there's there's so many good good actors in this, and and it's, they're just wasted. Or the, the the writing's not that great. Um, okay, all right. So yeah, so yes, this is disappointing. Uh, it would be a three star. It would be a, it would be a solid three star. It's very very, um, I would say, bang average. Okay. Now we'll talk cool. about the television and streaming uh, TV shows that uh, we've caught over the last month. Pistol then, Steve. Yeah, so this is a six-part Disney Plus series. It's the biopic of the Sex Pistols. 
which is based on Steve Jones' autobiography. He wrote a book called Lonely Boy, Tales of a Sex Pistol. Uh, so it's based on that. It's directed by Danny Boyle. Uh, Steve Jones is played by a guy called Toby Wallace, who appears to be pretty good. Uh, and you've got like uh, Johnny Rotten is played by a guy called Anson Boone, who I haven't seen in anything else, but he is legitimately fantastic. I'll come to him, but he, I think for me, is the star of this. Um, Mark McLaren, uh, who was the Sex Pistols manager, is played by Thomas Brody Sangster, who, despite being in huge hits like Game of Thrones and Queen's Gambit and stuff, I still look and think, oh, that's the wee guy from Love, actually. <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of a shame for him, but that's just that's yeah. basically who he is. Um, and yeah, so it's basically about the formation of and the early days of the Sex Pistols. Um, in terms of how true to life it is, it kind of depends on who you speak to on this one, because as I mentioned, it's based on Steve Jones' book. He was a guitarist and sort of founding member of the Sex Pistols, so it's told, it's a story from his perspective perspective um most of the band are on boards john lydon johnny rotten obviously because he is who he is he he took the entire band to court over this um despite being a, an anarchist <laughs> tried to take it through the courts he tried to he claims that he wasn't he claims he wasn't involved enough in the film the makers of the film say they did try to reach out to him but it didn't work and so they, they basically had to leave him out uh, he tried to get into he tried to prevent them from using the original Sex Pistols songs. It eventually failed, which I'm glad of, because the film soundtrack fantastically. It goes through kind of how some of the songs came about, uh, the way that they, they wrote them. Um, and in that, in that sense, it's it's fantastic. So it stays, it's, it's true to life from the perspective of one member of the band. Yeah. Uh, and you get Steve Jones's backstory as well. He... he suffered some pretty horrendous abuse as a child and it, it flashes back to, to that as well. There's also a there's a heavy dose of artistic license in it. The best example that's probably the inclusion of Chrissy Hines, who is best known as the lead singer of the Pretenders. She yeah. was around during the time of the Sex Pistols. She worked in the, the the shop called Sex, which was run by Vivian Westwood, who is also portrayed in the film. She was in the background obviously dressing the band. Um she worked in the shop and she was friends with the Sex Pistols, but she's played as the the love interest basically of Steve Jones, which is apparently completely invented she was consulted on this film but apparently even she was quite taken aback to watch the series and kind of watch herself shagging steve jones and going hang on i, I didn't do that <laughs> but um they seem to have got away with it danny boyle seems to have done it artistically enough um but it is it looks fantastic it's really nicely shot the soundtrack to the film is basically all the music from that period so it sounds brilliant and you've got other there's a few other sort of big names in there Maisie Williams I think this might be her sort of sort of first sort of big thing since Game of Thrones uh, she plays a really fantastic part in it as a, a true life punk who I think died recently actually but she was quite uh, momentous in the scene uh, but like I say Anson Boone who plays John Lydon is genuinely just you can't take your eyes off him the whole time he's on screen he's he plays the part as this kind of wide-eyed almost like rami malek and mr robots this kind of wide-eyed really well written sarcastic horrible but also actually in private quite sensitive and um quite empathetic so there's, I've still got a couple of episodes of this to go. Sid Vicious has just made an appearance. So I think they're gonna, the next episode is gonna go kind of big on him and the whole Sid and Nancy story. But it's, it's a legitimately great six-part series. Like I said, I'm two thirds of the way through it. 
massively enjoying it. I think I'm going to enjoy the rest of it. This is a five-star uh, series for me. Okay, excellent. Good to know. Good to know. I'll, I'll need to look out for that. Um, uh, Fran, I, I can see that it's mostly yourself that's got stuff to talk about. Come to you for The Boys Season 3, and I'll have to say, because it's quite a lot, we'll try and be brief with these if you can. Yep. So, yeah, I've been watching a bunch of a bunch of shows. So, yeah, The Boys Season 3, um, watched that almost in a one really. Uh, sort of waited for the waited for it to be out and then just watched it all. Uh, I, I enjoyed the first two seasons of The Boys. I think it's gone from strength to strength as it's gone on. It's obviously it's based on a, a, a comic book and I suppose it fits into that that sort of idea or kind of where Watchmen was coming from, I guess. This idea of superheroes being not not being perfect. There's this whole idea that runs through the program of power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, that sort of idea. Uh, it's just very, very, very well done. I mean, it deviates from the comic book quite a bit, but yeah, I, I just, I, I think it's a fantastic series and I think that it's getting stronger as it goes on for sure. Sorry about the noise. I don't know if you can hear the noise in the background there. Um, that was that was Homelander coming to kill me there, uh, flying, through the, flying through the streets. Fran, uh, I had said... I think I'd said on a previous podcast, I don't know if you would agree. Like, I, I agree with the boys. I think it's, I think it's tremendous. Um, some of the scenes in it as well are just like jaw dropping, um, without getting into spoilers. But I think, see, Tony Starr's portrayal of Homelander, I would probably put that up there with like Homelander being one of the best antagonists. And like, obviously it's not like kind of cinema, but in terms of like TV and movie, probably kind of up there with your like Darth Vader's and that yeah. kind of thing. Would you agree? I would say so. I mean, I would say that, you know, there's definitely a... I think it's the fact that they've been brave enough to... And again, bear in mind that this is coming from a comic book, right? But they have given us a villain who is a god, who is almost, I'd say, 99% unstoppable by any other force on Earth at the moment. And, uh, yeah, it's just really quite fascinating actually to when you're watching the show you're thinking how are they going to stop this guy there's true stakes there but I also think as well it's the characterisation of Homelander and his mental illness and the fact that he was brought up so badly when he was younger without parental figures and tortured or whatever it was they did to yeah. him when he was brought up the way he was he's good dad, um, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there's this, there's um, this amazing scene where he there's a couple of scenes that stood out to me. There's one where he was looking in the mirror, having a conversation with himself, and there's also a scene where he goes off, like he does something crazy, and then he just goes off to milk a cow and drinks <laughs> some milk, you know. And it's this very quiet, calm moment yeah. of Homelander. It's strange because Homelander obviously could destroy the, you know, he's obviously could destroy something just with a single, mm. you know, movement of his finger, but he's milking the cow. He's obviously being very careful, you know. He's milking the cow, uh, drinks the milk. He does love his milk, does Homelander. Yeah, um, right. I think the be- I think the best thing I would say about the boys is, and I know we spoke about the commitment that Marvel can't really do. I think because the boys, it's like the the shackles are off. They commit to some themes, and there's no it's no holds barred. And I think that's that's one of the best things I think about the boys. Yeah. 
Okay. Absolutely. We'll move on quickly then. Uh, you've also seen Stranger Things season four. You want to give a yep. quick review of that? I thought it was. I thought it was pretty good. I do think that Stranger Things suffers from the lost syndrome of the writers seeming to kind of come up with connections to previous events on the fly mm. because they don't seem to have a full roadmap for it. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I, I think it's set up. It set itself up. I mean. Has anybody has anybody watched all of it? I've, I've been meant to watch it. That and the boys are the like the next TV shows. I'm like I, right. I need to put the time well, into. All I'll say is it's set up for something that seems to be a little bit more on on a grander scale. Shall shall we say? Are they um, doing one more season? Uh, well, the, yeah. I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, the, the, but I don't know. I mean. It, uh, funny. They've signed up for a Stranger yeah, Things five, and yeah. I think the Duffer Brothers have said that that's going to be the 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 last. Right. I mean, I've, I've got a funny relationship with Stranger Things in the sense that I feel like whenever I've watched a season of it, I've then kind of forgotten about it, and then and then when I'm getting ready to watch a new season, I'm having to kind of gear myself up and get myself. I have to make an effort to be want to to want to watch it again, and then once you get into it, you're right into it again, and it's fine. So I don't know whether there's too much of a gap between the seasons, you know, when they when they come out or what it is. I was kind of sorry, Fram. I was I was kind of the same with you. I, I think Stranger Things three was. I, I don't think it was. I, I, it was probably the weakest of all the seasons, to be honest. I enjoyed so when, it, uh, but I when, don't know if I enjoyed it more than the others. I just remember enjoying it sort of equally. Mm, I'd say maybe not weakest, but but less memorable. So when when four started, I was probably in the same boat as you. It was like wait. What, what what actually happened in three? I'm kind of lost here. Um, I think the only thing I would say about the fourth, I mean, I loved it, I, I, but it, my God, overindulgent to the extreme. I think in this in this series. Okay, we'll leave it at that. What would you give this, Fran? Um, I would what a rating for Stranger Things. Yeah, the season. Well, um, I suppose I should maybe give the boys a rating as well. We never did that. Oh, did you not? Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I would I would actually give the boys season a five out of five. Right, five out of um, five. Yep. Um, for Stranger Things, I would say it's probably I would say it's a four out of five because there was there was with the boys I was pulled the whole way through, gripped by everything with Stranger Things this latest season. There was a couple of times where I found myself sort of thinking, "Get on with it, come on, yeah. let's get you the next bit." Um, and you know I tend to judge TV shows by that that sort of metric in my mind am I fully engaged with it is there any filler material so I think Stranger Things had more of that so I'm going to give it a 4 out of 5 now the next one is season 6 of Better Call Saul which I think you know Breaking Bad to me was the best TV show ever made well tied with The Sopranos probably but I think the pinnacle of the, the medium of television Better Call Saul, I think, has been given Breaking Bad a run for its money lately in terms of how good it is. It's probably, I think, one of the, and again, similar to Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul is like the antithesis of things like Jurassic World Dominion in terms of writing. It is one of the best written programmes I've ever seen. Ever. I, I, I find myself watching the episodes in awe of how they're tying up the, the threads from the previous five seasons of how they're making you feel, of how they're linking it to Breaking Bad. Uh, just uh, It's a, a masterful piece of work, Better Call Saul. I'm not going to say anything more because I'm, I, I want to be very careful with that, with that for anybody who will watch it because I'll ruin it. But it's a definite five out of five so far. Uh, obviously, season six is still going on, but for what I've seen so far, it's a 
five out of five five stars all the way okay for that what about for all mankind season three well for all mankind now let me just double check i'm pretty sure sure it is season three but i'm just gonna make i'm gonna make certain of this um i will be able to tell you in just a moment i'm just uh, checking the checking the actual season so for all mankind yep season three so for all mankind just to give a bit of background on it it's based on the idea that the Soviets reach the moon before the Americans. And that's when everything starts to change. That's where everything changes in the timeline. So it's an alternate history. And in this history, because the Soviets get to the moon, I think what happens is, I can't really remember season one, but I think what happens is it's a woman astronaut that gets there first. Because the Soviets, obviously, you know, as much as they were a repressive regime, they were sort of repressive, egalitarian in the repressiveness in the sense that they, you know, they sort of oppressed everybody equally but gave everybody opportunities as well. Like, being a woman wouldn't get you out of being press-ganged into the space service, do you know what I mean? Like, you, you know, you would be there. It wasn't a good thing per se, but what it does is it pushes the United States to compete. So they sort of start pulling in women into NASA and black people and people from other countries and things like that so it becomes it sort of pushes the states to become a kind of a more it pushes their cultural development ahead a bit weirdly enough um season three and it pushes technology ahead so season in season three it's set in the 90s right but you've got these 90s versions of apple iphones that people have these big clunky things with like rollerball cameras on the top that people use to communicate and the internet's slightly more advanced and you know there's just some cool stuff going on because obviously technology a lot of technology we have is based on uh advances that were used for things like the space race weren't they so you can see these devices are going to public use um you've got a woman president interestingly enough the president the character has been in the show before. She's a she's a, a closeted lesbian who's married to her gay friend, <laughs> you know. So, but she's she's in the series at the moment. She's having to run policies that are running counter towards LGBT rights. So it's like really interesting, you know, dynamic there. Yeah. Also, the technology level of the space race has got to the point where they're they're kind of flying about in ships. That obviously they can't go at warp speed or whatever, but they've got a bridge on them. It's a bit like the Enterprise. Some of these ships that they've got, they're going to Mars. That's the whole plot. So the the Soviet Union doesn't collapse either. That's still there. So at the moment, there's a private company, the Soviet Union and the United States, are all in this race through space to get to Mars first. Um, yeah, it's incredible, really. I, I think it's a very, very good show. I think it's one of those shows that... It's one of those rare, rare, precious shows that deals with current uh, current societal issues and issues of morality, issues of, you know, you're sort of the crossover of the political and the social. It's one of those rare programmes that deals with those in an allegorical way without, you, you know what I mean? It, 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 it's how it should be done. You watch the programme and you think, God damn, am I a little bit ignorant? And I didn't even realise. Do you know what I mean? Right. Okay. And it catches you off guard. It's not. It's not like a lot of other shows that hold up a practically hold up a notice on the screen that says you are a cunt because of what you think, right? <laughs> right? Because because guess what, guys, that's not going to win anybody over, right? But see, this kind of program, what it does is it has scenes where you you know you're watching the interaction between the characters. Like there's a bit in it where, um, like and and again, there's there's this like a white white guy and a black woman who have been friends for years and you know, they've got senior in NASA 
and she gets chosen to go to the the Mar- go on the Mars mission instead of him, right? Despite the fact that he was like more experienced, and they're sitting in the 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 bar, and he's having a few drinks with her, and he says to her, you know, it's really unfair at the end of the day because they, you know, and he kind of lets his guard down and he says to this woman who's been friends with for 20 years, he says, you know, that, that they picked you for, for other reasons. Do you know what I mean? Now that's actually true in the context of the program in the sense that there is an element of they've picked her for the optics, right? But they also picked her because she was, because she was a by the book person, right? So there's, it's complicated. So that, do you see where I'm coming from? They've picked this woman for the job, for the optics and because she's going to follow the orders, she's not a cowboy, right? But with him letting his guard down and saying that to his friend, she gets up and leaves him at the bar, and then you see him regret and saying that to her, even though it, it, it makes you think yourself. You think to yourself, okay, even if it was true, it still wasn't very nice to say it, right? And it makes you think more deeply about how people interact with each other in today's world and how people just insult each other and are, or people are destroyed for thoughtlessness, do you know what I mean? Or how you could so easily fall into that trap yourself or whatever. It just gets the thoughts going in your head. And I think for that reason, I'm going to give this season of it a five out of five so far. Yeah, sounds good. Okay. Uh, well, I've also got a few others here. Light and Magic? Yep, nice and simple. So Light and Magic, based on the... Well, not based. It's like a documentary miniseries, like six episodes based on industrial light and magic. Obviously, the company that's behind, you oh. know, started out with Star Wars um, and then went on to do Jurassic Park and lots of other things over the years. And it's fascinating watching how that company came together. So you see them in a warehouse and trying to put together the equipment. These were the first people who ever did any of this stuff. So like the motion tracking of models and the lighting of models and, and compositing them properly onto backgrounds and all of it. And it takes you through the journey of, of how that, that um, how they just basically made it up as they went along. Like, and, and there was this amazing moment in the show though, where you, they were talking to the visual effects artists about how they felt when they went to see Star Wars for the first time as a big group. And they were saying, you know, they were, they, they, they were in tears watching it on the screen because they couldn't believe what they'd actually created. You know, this, this idea that they'd they'd changed the, the face of cinema forever in the sense of what, what they had been able to achieve with the technology at the time. Incredible. Fran, does it go be, does it go behind is it kinda of like a behind the scenes on specific films? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you, you well you see bits obviously it's very Star Wars heavy, but you see yeah. bits about there's a bit quite a big bit about Jurassic Park. There's some mention of Star Trek films as well, actually. Uh there's um talk about pixar toy story obviously there's it goes into the it's a chronological journey hmm. so it, it, it sort of documents like this is the part where return of the jedi was finishing off and then that was when they were starting to put industrial light magic out on the market and say right other films can, other film companies and studios can come to us for work so yeah i mean you had your indiana jones films as well obviously uh, they were they were doing them, yeah. So it goes into other other movies as well. I, I actually, uh, again, I don't want to say too much about it because it's you know it's a very special show. It's 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 probably I mean think about the budgets Disney's got. It's almost like the most premium of premium TV documentary series that you could get. It's so what was well this done. On were you watching it on Disney uh, Plus? Di- or something? Disney Plus, yeah. yeah. It was actually my uncle Robert that put me onto it he said that's coming out just keep an eye out for that so i watched it all 
in one day again. I've been doing that a lot lately where I've got if I've got a block of time, I just sit and watch an entire show. <laughs> I just sit yeah. and watch it. But it's like watching a long form movie. Yeah. You know? No, that sounds uh, really but, interesting. Their body of work is incredible. I actually do want to watch that. Yep. So I, I um I, I don't know what to say. I'm going to break again. I'm breaking the two out of five here. I'm going to have to give it a five out of five. It's it's one of the one of the best documentaries in terms of giving you information that you didn't actually know about. If that makes sense, I think. Okay. All right. For then. some for something you're familiar with, so you know the movies, but you really don't know a lot of the stuff that you'll see there. So mm-hmm. yeah. Excellent. Uh, two more. Star Trek Strange New World. Yep. So, in today's world of crap movies, <laughs> badly written things, whatever, right? Now, obviously, I've picked out some good stuff today. Star Trek, Star Trek has suffered a lot over the recent recent years. Um, with they must be must be writers coming from the same same college as the ones that did Jurassic World and all that, right? And all these things, like the you know Star Trek Discovery, to me. It's had it's it's had some decent moments in it as it's gone on, but uh, Star Trek Discovery to me is like watching a bunch of students in first year at university who've had two or three drinks and they're getting emotional and crying together about how much they love each other, right? You know that's that, that's what it is. It's like oh my god, we gotta we gotta do some science to save the ship, man. Oh my god, Michael, you mean so much to me. Oh, let's hug each other. It's like oh shut up, man. What is this crap, right? Now, it did pick up a bit later on. It got a bit better. But to me, it was the huggy, crying, sensitive people program set in space, right? Basically, that was the only thing. So you'd look at... Basically, it's the same as... Not, like, a, good, not a good subtitle. It didn't mark it uh-huh. very well for that. Yeah. So like you, you could have like a, 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 a therapy session filmed and composite the, a space background on the window, and that would be Star Trek Discovery, right? So anyway, um, not so keen on it. Uh, just annoying stuff and and i was not happy about the visual retcon of star trek either and i think it's important to say how bitterly annoyed i've been with the way things have gone with that right especially when you look at things like rogue one book of boba fett mandalorian for star wars and how perfect they, perfectly they were faithful to what things were like right book of boba fett. All... i know but like, well, i'm just talking about visual continuity that's all right okay. and it's just sand in the book of boba fett it's just yeah. tatooine but the sand the... beige beige sand the sand is accurate, right? Right. <laughs> so, You've checked every that, grain. Right? Yep, if all hundred billion trillion of them, they're all there, right? So, so basically, that I think it's important to preface that before I go into talking about strange new worlds, right? Now, here's the thing: strange, strange new worlds is so well written that I was able to look past the visual retcon, right? Now, that that's that's an astonishing thing. It's something I did not expect. Right now, to give you an idea of what's going on, Star Trek Discovery is set 15 years before the original series, which was filmed in the 60s. We all know how terrible the original series looked. We knew that it would need a bit of a visual update. It didn't need to be trashed. They could have kept it faithful and they could have kept a 60s aesthetic, but with much higher quality sets and models and things like that. They could have done it, but they didn't. Right. Strange New Worlds is starts right after Star Trek Discovery, one of the seasons of Discovery, right? So it's again set in that time, and it's on the USS Enterprise with the previous captain before Captain Kirk, right? And Captain Kirk actually appears in this show, right? At one point, uh, uh, through various means. Patrick Stewart? No, that's William oh, Shatner. Shatner. Oh, the 60s. Oh, We're talking God, about the yeah, 60s sorry, one, right? Up. Yeah, clearly not a Trekkie. Yeah. Terrible. I did myself there. <laughs> so... 
And that's after doing the Star Trek flipping series with me as I well. Know. With yeah. Yeah. Uh, mind of a goldfish over there. So, <laughs> so I wasn't expecting much, right? But when I watched that first episode of Strange New Worlds, it was a strange experience where it was happening in front of my eyes and my eyes were... My, it was like I was thinking, oh, right, okay, so that's not the way it's supposed to look, right? But as this episode went on, I bought in more and more to the fact that it was so well written, right? The characters had had uh, they had goals. There was things that they needed to do. There was room for development. There was arcs being introduced. There were high stakes in in, in the episodes. You were wondering, well, what's going to happen here, right? Because a lot of the characters don't appear in later treks. So you think, do they live or die? Episode two, loved that. Episode three, as it went all the way, I, 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 each one was getting better and better. Now, I can't overstate actually how how well written a program would have to be for me to look past you know i'm 36 years old now i've been a star trek fan since i was five or six years old you're looking talking about over, just over 30 years of being a fan of something and being upset by how they changed it right i can't overstate how well written this had to have been to have won me back right so i would actually say star trek strange new worlds is a great launching point for anybody who's looking to get into the star trek fandom now because if you watch that you will get what Star Trek's about right away. It's it's the episodes. It's it's not like a big long running arc. I mean, there are arcs for the characters, but each episode is a self contained story. Wait, Fran. I thought Star Trek was all about rescuing humpback whales to fend off a big floating piece of black pudding in space. <laughs> well, that was one of them. That was one of them. That was Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home. Mm-hmm. So that one there, well, it was a black a, a black pudding that hadn't been cut up yet. No, no, it was, it was it like was a, a cigar black. <laughs> and weirdly, very that's very one very of their fair. best films actually. When you, uh-huh. it's, it's yep. as bad as mm. you say that, it's actually a good film despite well, that, that, that terrible premise. That was one of the the biggest box office successes for Star Trek. Now, that 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 was where Star Trek combined a little bit of humor with a little bit of high with some high stakes you know they had to save the earth right so they're saving the earth but there's also some humor there as well strange new worlds has that in droves it's not slapstick it's you know but the, there's there's great character moments throughout it uh i would highly recommend all of you watch it it's it's something i don't know how to describe it other than it's almost like what they had lost from the recent star trek stuff that they were making they've rediscovered it again Whatever little magic formula they had in a bottle, they found it in some dusty bit of Paramount Studios or whatever, and they've taken it back out and poured it into this, and it just works. Now, it doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter that it breaks visual canon. That's how good it is. That's how well written it is. So, yeah, there you go. That's that. Five out of five, season one, Strange New Worlds, without a doubt. Another five out of five. And the last one you've got here, The Orville, season three. Yep, The Orville. Now, interestingly enough, Seth MacFarlane is the guy that created this show. Seth MacFarlane's a massive Star Trek fan. He was not happy about the way Star Trek was going, and he loved Star Trek The Next Generation, and he thought to himself, I'm going to make a show that's not Star Trek, but basically is Star Trek, right? So it's it's a different Earth, different space service, whatever. Is it animated? Uh, no, 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 it was live, live action. So the first two seasons, I mean, it was it's a comedy program, right? So the first two seasons was kind of like a mixture of Star Trek and Family Guy live action. It's so hard to explain, right? Um, and as it, uh, you know, there would be times in the first season where you'd think, mm, the jokes are a bit too on the nose. Like, I don't mean on the nose politically, I mean like on the nose, like, like obvious, obvious dumb humour, right? Yeah. And then season two got a wee bit better. 
But but when you watch season three, you realise what they were going for. They're slowly pulling you towards this being a serious show. Because season three is actually, I mean, it's got tiny bits of humour in it, but season three is a straight up serious sci-fi season. And each episode looks like a movie in this season. I mean, it's almost like they had more, like, 10 times the budget or something like that because you've got space battles with hundreds of ships you've got them flying around on planets with all these uh, installations everywhere you've got hundreds of extras all over the place gigantic sets Um, it's just incredible really 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 impressive stuff and I think I would have said if it wasn't for Strange New Worlds I would have said the Orville was the future of Star Trek because you know you've got it's written by a true fan I certainly know that it's hit its stride in season three, but I'd say it's a nice compliment to it. Like I, I tend to watch, well, Strange New Worlds is finished now, but at an amazing period of time there where I was watching an episode of Obi-Wan Kenobi, an episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, or an episode of The Orville, or an episode of Better Call Saul the same day, and it was like heaven. I was just one after the other, you know, um, incredible shows, but all with their own unique thing going on. What would you give the review then, a uh, score for The Orville season three? Well, I would. Right, I'm going to actually do something strange here, and I'm going to score each season for you, so you can get an idea, right? So, season one, I would give a three out of five. Season two would be a four out of five, and season three is a five out of five. Right. So it's improved as it's gone on. So that's just in case any of you decide to watch it, just to persevere, because there's arcs that run from season one. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, as well, the helmsman in the Orville was in Band of Brothers. Um, he was the red-haired guy. What was he called again? Do you remember oh, him, Steve? You mean the lead? No, 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 <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> Damien Lewis. <laughs> no, the 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 guy that had the Irish name. Um, oh, Malarkey. Yeah, Malarkey. Uh huh. Okay. And and in fact, in um, uh, Orville, he's called Malloy. Right. So he's got a sort of similar name. Yeah. But yeah, he's he's one of the he's like one of the kind of main ensemble cast members. Sounds like a good time for sci-fi television. As much as you get misgivings about some blockbuster cinema, it, it sounds like television shows or or especially in the sci-fi vein are. You know, getting some good marks here. Yeah. Well, I would. Well, I would. On you go. Sorry, on you go. Oh, I was just going to say. In conclusion, I would say that I think that some of the franchises on TV are listening to to constructive criticism from fans. Now, what they used to do was, right? Sadly, um, if somebody criticised Star Trek Discovery, they would be jumped on by hundreds of people on Twitter saying, "You just don't like it because the lead person is black." Right. Now that's bullshit because. Star Trek Deep Space Nine came out in 1993 and had a black captain. And a lot of classic Star Trek fans loved that show. Well, all of us did, right? It's nothing to do with that. Um, anybody who thinks that Star Trek has suddenly become egalitarian and um, and progressive is an ignorant fool. Because Star Trek, Star Trek was ahead of the curve. Star Trek had the first interracial kiss in TV in the 60s. Star Trek had an Asian guy, a Russian, a Scottish guy, and a black woman on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise in the 60s. It had the first black lead like that in a sci-fi program with Cisco and Deep Space Nine had the first major female lead in um, Star Trek Voyager in 1995 I think that was when that started right so start, those criticisms don't don't wash like when it comes to fans complaining about about modern shows so so I think what's happened is that the creators have sat back and, and gotten off their high horse a wee bit and said to themselves actually these fans aren't bigoted ignorant Trump supporting confederate flag waving Nazis it's actually that they just don't like the writing. Yeah, it sounds like it's they're, and from what you're saying, it sounds like the uh, writing and the stuff that doesn't work is it's talking down to an audience that doesn't need talking uh-huh. down to. Exactly, okay. because anybody who is a Star Trek fan, anybody who likes Star Trek, by definition, has to be okay 
with people of different races and genders and sexualities because it's in the show it's been in the show the whole time right you can't i mean can you imagine somebody who who like a, a racial pure purist watching star trek deep space nine or saying oh yeah i love all those aliens on the ship do you know what i mean like they, they wouldn't do that they wouldn't you know they wouldn't they wouldn't be admi- admiring the federation of planets would they you know so i'm kind of glad that the that they've said right okay we're not going to insult the fans anymore and, and do hot takes on Twitter. What we'll actually do is read through what they've said. And that seems to have been what's happened, um, thankfully. But it was quite it was quite a uh, I'm trying to think of the word the word for it. It was quite a sad period of time where loyal fans of a show were being accused of things that was not not the case. Now, okay, you get a few bad apples. I think there probably was a few folk maybe in some fandoms that, you know, weren't and that, that was in Star Wars as well and various other things that maybe were, were trolling or, or saying things they shouldn't have said. But the vast majority of people, I think, have now got... They've got... Their voice has been heard and I think that that is very much in evidence in the quality of some of the sci-fi that's out now. Uh, they're listening to these criticisms and I wish movies would do the same. Well, I mean, I suppose it's all about it's different writers and different things. So there's not... Uh, there's obviously... You can generalise, but it depends where you go to. I do think... I take your point, though, that some of the big block buster films are are uh, missing the point a lot with what makes their earlier franchise films good but let's uh let's move on to the final section of today and that is the look back section which is where we just briefly review and look at any older films that uh we've caught this month from from films anytime before 2022 so uh gordon you wanted to kick us off on this this section obviously again i'll just preface we'll we'll try and be concise and brief with these just because um we'll probably get quite a few and um we don't want to go on too long yeah sorry by the way i was hoping i was brief enough i was trying to be hard it's hard to do it when you've got lots to say yeah well um I don't know if any of you have seen Angels and Demons, which is the sequel to the the first sequel to the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, yeah, two thousand nine. I'll be interested to hear your thoughts. I'll just briefly say um, I enjoyed it. I, I love the feel and the atmosphere of it, the sets. I enjoyed Tom Hanks as Robert Langdon, Professor Robert Langdon, who's dra- of course he's drafted in um, to stop. It's really a terrorist plot, I suppose, to um, kill the. F- um, it's just the Illuminati. This sort of organization to execute four of the proposed like new um popes in the vatican and uh, he has to stop all the bloodshed and, or help to stop it um yeah i think it is, it's very fast-paced I, I think it is maybe a bit overly complex plot wise i was just struggling to keep up with a lot of when um langdon's explaining just uh, how just how everything works how how he how he can find the small traces to where this Illuminati group are hiding, uh, but it's, I love that it's almost in real time. Um, him sort of running, out, he seems to be constantly running, <laughs> just trying to keep up. Um, to, but it's high stakes though, which I really enjoyed. Um, I just feel it's like overly complex. Um, I, I like though. It, obviously, you're trying to guess who the traitor is as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's good. Uh, like three stars, maybe three. Yeah, three and a half. Probably. I do half marks usually. It's so like probably three and a half. Yeah. Okay. Any others? Yeah. Um or oh, no, just to just to quickly add to that, like Robert Langdon's one of these guys, it's like 
I enjoy him, but it's like it's almost like if you ever watch The Saint with Roger Moore, you'll see like Roger Moore in a Bond film, and it, you, then you see him in The Saints approaching these dangerous people. It's like you should have a gun there, you should have a way to defend yourself. I look at Robert Langdon, I think this guy just really needs a gun. But yeah, um, The Dark Knight Rises, I saw for the first time, and I'd never. I hadn't. I think I maybe only saw the Dark Knight, the second in the the modern day Batman trilogy, in the cinema. Not seen it since. So, but despite that, I, I really enjoyed the Dark Knight Rises. It's obviously quite a behemoth of a film. Yes, it's uh, too long. I think I have strong Probably. thoughts on this film. Um, we had a text conversation about this film when you first told me you'd watched it. Um, Overall, I do. I remember love. I remember really liking it, not loving it in the cinema. Um, and it feels consistent with the the trilogy that he made. So I like it for that. But it's the weakest of the three by far for me. Um, mostly again length, and it takes itself so seriously. And the final third is just nonsense for me. Oh, uh, perhaps I was wondering why it would shoot a yeah. man. I was wondering. Yeah, the, who, yeah, I was wondering who would do the first Bane impression. <laughs> It's uh, it's yeah, it's, it's kind of off. But I, I did like the character and the the, the darkness of him. I, but like you said, Steve, it's like the voices coming from somewhere else. And uh, in the cinema, yeah, it's really difficult to ascertain where it was coming from. Like mm. that with that line where he says, "Perhaps there's one." Like that line, like you. <laughs> well, I think the I think the if I remember correctly, the trailer that came out, I think it was instant feedback because. They didn't overdub the voice then. I think it was actually they tried to do it within the scene. Um, and I'm pretty sure there were some trailers where it was really inaudible. Like you could not hear what he was saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was definitely an editing choice after yeah. the fact. Um, the production. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 listen, when you're in the cinema and you just hear this really menacing voice coming out of nowhere it is a bit kind of off-putting but... is it menacing though it sounds like an old grandpa has well, had a voice distortion no thing what, going what, on. what i meant by in the cinema where you as you say you don't know where it's coming from it's kind of like well that's yeah. kind of that's kind of strange but i quite like the character of bane um yeah i like the character uh, yeah the tom hardy is is very imposing like he is fantastic yeah. his build in that film is incredible and yeah He's actually not a tall guy, but the film makes him look somehow huge. Yeah, the, yeah, the way it yeah. shoots, it sh- you know, the yeah. s- cinematography. His, showed, like his shoulders are fucking yeah. just wrong in it. <laughs> it's just massive. But... I'll let you say your piece on it, Gordon, before I kind of <laughs> jump yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, the, the length is a bit off-putting. And, and, you know, when I sit down, like, on a Friday night, I'm usually having a, a few drink breaks. Like, to you know, wait, I think that's the sort of film, to me, you need to have a few beers just to uh, just to kind of keep Take yourself <laughs> sustain yourself through it really it's just uh, but uh, I just I really like the feel I think I'm maybe starting to maybe now gravitate more towards the the darker Batman I, I, I mean and this has come from someone actually who's always been quite a big fan of Batman Returns but um, I liked um, I, I really liked like you I really liked Anne Hathaway I was going to say for me they're darker in a sense they're darker in content. I wouldn't say that they're dark. They're, they're not really dark. For me, Batman Returns is the darkest Batman ever gets. And, and probably the first one. In fact, both of them. The two of them in different ways. The second one, Batman Returns, is more sexualized. Like, there's a lot of really sinister sexual politics going on. There's a menacing villain in Christopher Walken. And there's murder that's 
quite I suppose they do it in the Nolan films as well. But the, the, there's something really sinister, almost horror-like in the first Batman when obviously the Joker scene when he's like, mirror! And it's that kind of like, the surgery, you know, that kind of disfigured moment. Like, the way it's shot. I think, yeah, there's a darkness there's, there's, to that, There's yeah. darkness to that, whereas the Nolan films... Yeah. It's trying to be... I think it's serious, because... It's serious, well, yeah, Nolan, Nolan, he's trying to be so grounded and I think that's where people think, oh, it's dark. Because it's actually just... I mean, the Dark Knight... It's literally just a it's, a, it's a mobster film. It's like a gangster ah. movie. It's not a, you know, the, the the actual superhero element. So then obviously the Dark Knight Rises kind of tries to follow into that. But the problem with the Dark Knight Rises is, is it, 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 I don't think it, I think it moves away from the grounded element. Like, for example, the Batwing comes out, he flies, you know, there's a lot of things in it where you're going, well, wait a minute. Yeah. Like, it's one thing. It's one thing. Batman taking on, you know, the Joker, who literally is like a, a mob boss, right? There's not a lot of gadgets. So it's, it's it's like you know. Yeah, so the, the, it's like a Bond film with a yeah, yeah, caped hero kind of thing. I wouldn't say Bond. I wouldn't say well, Bond. Nolan said he was influenced by Bond, the Bond films. That was a major mm-hmm. thing with it. Yeah, never, I didn't. I, I can't say I picked that up too much though. No, but never got I, think, I, still... I know what you mean. It's, it's, it's just it's more of a kind of grounded this potentially could happen in real life some guy dressing up as this he's had the training some crazy guy in a cloud mask but i think dark knight rises then it, it's still trying to be grounded it just moves away from that but i'm gonna i'm with i'm with steve i think the first the tim burton batmans are dark yeah but you're not gonna get any more darker than a crazy guy that looks like a penguin coming up and biting somebody's nose off and <laughs> stealing a baby <laughs> <laughs> stealing babies yeah you know what i mean like the content is still dark uh, but again i think the difference is it's just that it's the grounded in reality batman returns is just it's just crazy looking you know people dry you know dry bouncing out of christmas trees and all that i know kind of stuff. i mean it's, it's, that's the thing it's a like it's a kind of contrast there's darkness there but there's also cartoonish kind of antics there is like yeah, kind of silliness yeah. to it all which is a strange thing that's, yeah that's the world. i think both i think for me both 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 achieve what they set out to do within the worlds and the rules that they set in place yeah like, well, i don't think i don't think you can compare we could go on i could do a whole podcast yeah, on this yeah. so i'm really worried about time here uh so i'll just very quickly make a point the the actual politics of the film annoy me as well batman essentially represents the elites and bane represents the common man which is why Mm. it's a bit kind of fucked on that sense that you're meant to really support the hero when he's kind of not really quite you know it's it's a strange mix Uh, but i do like uh, selena kyle in it Uh, i think Anne hathaway's fantastic in it some top quality acting by Michael Caine at the end as well. Uh, well, it's kind of, it felt... And I, I thought you master Bruce. The thing, you know, I take back for me, uh, take away from me for maybe, and again, it's ages since I saw Batman Begins or The Dark Knight, but it feels like the Alfred in this trilogy, he's he's so much more mo- involved in yeah. Bruce Wayne's life. I mean, he was literally, he felt like, from what I remember of the trilogy before that he was more just like a butler but in this he's he like he's almost telling wayne what to do at one point yes, there is a, yeah. like, he is getting quite emotional like like i raise you since you were a baby master all just something like that and it's quite <laughs> I, he gets very involved it's almost like he it's almost it's like alfred's figure. film in a way i don't well, yes yeah. he's like a father figure i, I don't taste the mind it um uh, Jeremy Irons' portrayal, I think, is far too involved in terms of the he basically is Batman's engineer at, at, at a point. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I quite like Michael Kidd. Yeah, I quite like. 
But no, I liked him. It's just it's a different take on the character from everything how it originally was. It's interesting. Right. We'll it's a, I would say it's a four. Yeah. You, you can I, ask me that. Right? I would agree with that. I would agree with a four. I give it a four. Just a plain solid four. Um, I just I like the feel of it a lot, and I think I'd probably like it more in a secondary after having seen uh, the Dark Knight again. Yeah. I like um just I know we're I know you're desperately trying to move us on here, Steve, so I'm gonna talk really yeah. slowly. <laughs> but Hans Zimmer Oh yeah, you remember this other film suddenly? Let's yeah. talk about that. Uh, Han Hans Zimmer score in the Dark Knight Rises yeah. is banging. Like the Deshi Bashara chant, the build up at the end and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's uh, it kicks. Yeah, there's definitely some great stuff in it. And the action scenes are fantastic. The heist scenes and things like that are mm. great. The bank heist and all that. But any others, Gordon, before we uh, move yeah. on to something else? Uh, just briefly, I was going to mention, you may not have heard of it, cause I don't think it gets a lot of exposure, and maybe because of the racial issues in it, A Time to Kill, a 1996 Joe Schumacher film, um, and it stars, it's got an absolute stellar cast, Matthew McConaughey, Samuel L. Jackson, uh, Sandra Bullock, Kevin Spacey, it also supporting roles. Interestingly, Donald and Kiefer Sutherland, but they're not meant to be related in the film, and they don't share any scenes together. Um, but like, it, it's very. If you've ever seen Mississippi Burning with William oh, Defoe and Gene Hackman, it's, it, it's pretty similar though. Um, and I think this was maybe made after, but it's similar racial issues, but I think a bit darker. And this it's Samuel Jackson's character, and it's really brutal stuff. Um, his daughter is raped and beaten and nearly killed in a racially aggravated murder amongst other like sort of terrible things these couple of sort of um redneck white guys in the region i don't think it's mississippi i think it might be missouri um just somewhere down in the south and um then that but then as an act of vengeance um sam jackson's character kills the two guys as they're making their way to court for the hearing for the like a sort of rape and attempted murder and there's just the, you know the Ku Klux Klan like emerging stuff and there's like they're start to burn the houses what the main theme is that Ma Matthew McConaughey's character takes on the case to defend Samuel L. Jackson for the like for the murder of these of the guys who raped his daughter like in front of hundreds of people so it's like he's defending them indefensible in a way but it's like it really tests your morals because it's like how could you stand there while these two guys get away with it anyone would any father would behave like that so it tests your morals of film but it's like the cool thing about it is just the way it escalates similar to Mississippi Burning Steve like once um, once Matthew McConaughey takes on the case his character I forget his name um, everything escalates his family are put in danger people start getting killed and beaten and it's like it's one of the themes is like somebody he won't give up though it's like and then his own house gets burned down by the Ku Klux Klan it's like pursuing something no matter the consequences no matter the cost okay uh, so really it's it's really this? interesting um i'd give it a four um probably a four yeah just caught because of the tension because of the way it escalates but like i said i mean miss it's pretty similar to mississippi burning okay any others gordon or is there <laughs> no that's it that's... right okay cool scott well, very quickly, I was going to say, before I look back, I'll look very quickly forward to the, the, the chat about sci-fi films and, and how they land in modern time. Um, the Prey is the next instalment in the Predator franchise, which is coming out on Disney Plus on the 5th of August. And that's going to be really interesting to see what they do with that after 
the absolute disaster that was the Predator. Yeah, well, um, I'm just going to say my expectations are not high for that. Uh, I don't think the Predator films have been good, apart from the first yeah. one, really. The second one is passable. Mm. So, ah, so ah, interesting. So the only thing I'd probably say of no, without going into great detail, was the Matrix franchise. So I'd seen the Matrix Resurrections when it first came out earlier the year, um, and recently I thought, didn't give it a great score. Um, didn't think it was a great film overall, but I thought, right, let's just go back, watch it from the start up to the words Matrix Resurrections. Um, and I, you just forget how good a film The Matrix is. Again, up there with the, you know, the the cinematic firsts of Marvels like Jurassic Park and their Star Wars 1999 movie with the special effects and all the stunts, which is it's really interesting when you go back. It's actually there's actually not a great deal of CGI used in the first Matrix. It does seem like a lot of practical. So it was a wire work, was it not? It was a lot of wire work, but I think it's the way. I think back then it was because if I remember, like the first few X Men movies, it's like my God, you can you can almost see the wires in these films. But I think it's the way that the Wachowski shot the film, the way they used the the camera to span in the slow mo. It didn't make it as blatantly obvious it was wire work. There's obviously CG elements of course but um no hold, holds up well unfortunately for that franchise and I, and I think it's very similar to the jurassic park or slash world franchise is the next one is just more is better bigger is better so in the first one you've got one agent smith in the second one he can just spawn and create an entire world of smiths that neo's got to fight in a really bad cg rendered uh, fight scene revolutions i don't even know what the matrix Re- revolutions is and i don't even think they know what it is but you get to the you get to matrix resurrections i touched on at the start of the podcast about jurassic world being very self-referential you will never get a more self-aware self-referential film than the matrix resurrections it is it's not even on the nose it's beyond the nose they even mention warner brothers owning the matrix they mentioned bullet time so many times in it it's so egregious. The writing's so bad. Terrible. They honestly, the 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 Matrix Resurrections. To sum it up, is basically a film which tells you all. It basically tells you how good the first Matrix film was. Mm. It actually uses flat so much flashback footage from the first Matrix film. I'm talking actual actual footage of the film. It's like it it borders on like fan made. You know, it's just it's just madness. It's just absolute madness. Um, unfortunately, Keanu Reeves' endearing acting can't save that save that film. So, um, so I would probably say I, I don't know about scoring. Obviously, The Matrix. The, for me, The Matrix is a five star film. Unfortunately, the rest just turn into mediocre, just chuff. Are they all two stars after that? Well, I think Reloaded. I probably wouldn't go as far as saying Reloaded and. Uh, revolutions were were two stars i think they're still well made and 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 fit the the, the the sort of the story of the franchise they just become bizarre they just become bonkers i think resurrections is probably a two star for me yeah it yeah. sounds like it, if it's not a one okay dokie uh steve have you got any films on the look back section i actually don't that's fine at this don't. point no worries uh fran um not really no um that's, yeah, I, th- I think it was ma- mainly just the TV stuff. Okay. So I've got a few films. I'm not going to go into all of them. I'll kind of very briefly mention a couple of them. Uh, Top Gun was the one that I have watched. I don't know if we covered it on the podcast before. I know that you guys 
did and I hadn't seen it. So I have since seen the first one. And I'll just very briefly say that I'm not a big fan of this film. I would give it three out of five, but it's quite a generous three, more for its iconic kind of the cinematography. Um, I didn't enjoy the music very much. I thought Tom Cruise is quite unlikable and it's hard to relate to him. And I just didn't find uh, the story very compelling, even towards the action scenes at the end. So uh, 1986's Top Gun would get a very generous three out of five from me. Mortal Kombat 1995. Uh, this is a film that I absolutely loved. I rewatched it, and this is <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you just, you just, you, you just can't, you can't mention that without either the, doing the Raiden breath, Christopher Lambert's breathless laugh, or the get over here. Um, There's so much. I mean, what? I mean, you could just, uh, it's just it's instantly quotable. Uh, yeah, uh, it's. I mean, I would, I would almost want to give it a five, but I can't probably just from the the, the special effects have aged a little. It's a bit like see, you can do whatever you want on I this know, podcast. I know. If you want to give this film a five, you give it. It seems too much. It's a very high four for me. Um, if you know, I, I think casting wise, I think it's fantastic. Liu Kang and um, you know, Robin Robin Shaw and and things like that are great. Uh, I think nearly all of them are actually fantastic. Kano, we always do his impersonation. I, I, I'll be taking talking <laughs> oh, for ages, but yeah, it's yeah. a fun film. The reason I watched this was because I actually then watched Mortal Kombat Annihilation oh, for some God. reason. I don't know why. I was in the mood for some real trash, just something that I could fall asleep to and not care about. So I always will go for something that I've seen before or I know is pretty bad and I don't care. Almost want to get that kind of guilty pleasure enjoyment mm. and in Mortal Kombat Annihilation well I still would give it an absolute one star this film is, is tragic <laughs> tragically bad like there is no character development there is barely any characters on screen Steve, most of Steve, the the fucking bit with the with riding just one minute he's got long hair and then yeah. the next minute he comes away and he comes back and he's got a fucking crew cut and it's just like this is for no reason like I don't, I would. There's not many films I would give a one star to. I think I've given a one on that Bond film we watched, Gordon. Um, never seen ever again, and maybe one other one. Uh, this is this is a solid one star for me. There is pretty much nothing recommendable about it at all, unless you want to watch something that is so bad that you somehow can get enjoyment out of that. Um it's laughable the, the yeah, special CG. effects are terrible the writing is awful even the choreography yeah. isn't so good um the costumes are pathetic like they are really bad like cosplayers are so much better than what in this film the casting is awful they recast most of the characters and even people like james remar who I actually really like and things like dexter all that he comes back as raiden but again it's not very good um i just remember this the cg when i think it's when uh the the emperor what's his name oh so you've got Shao Kahn who in the game Shao is a Kahn, fucking sorry. badass uh, main villain and he's got daddy issues in this film which is just <laughs> but when when um, when Liu Kang transforms in, into his animality I think yeah. that's what they call it yeah like when when the emperor's like wrestling with him you can just see the CG just like go through his arm like it it's so bad yeah. Yes. It's, and you say it's laugh, laughable. I don't understand. W was this a cinematic release or was it just straight to DVD? Uh, it made some cinema releases, I'm pretty certain. Yeah, it did. It, go, it went to cinemas in America. I don't know if it came, it came over here, but 
Uh, they did release it to cinema and it obviously didn't do very well. It was a mm. bit of a flop. Uh, the Rock, I watched for the first time in years. I've only seen it, I think, once before. Uh, 1996. I think it was 96 that was released. I might be wrong, Scott. You, you're more of a familiar Rock no, fan. Now, is this the one that, where it's uh, the unofficial James Bond film? Welcome uh, well. to work. Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I, I, I don't think I'm on the same page as everyone else, but it seems to get put on this pedestal as one of the best action no, films. I really no, I I enjoyed it, but I, I found it the, maybe the last third for some reason not very memorable, no, Steve, actually. It's, it's more, it's more um, I think it's more cult for the... Uh, the sort of the the dialogue between Sean Connery yeah. and like Nicholas Cage, it's kind of uh, like, machismo yeah. kind of testosterone yeah. filled kind of film, and it's got that, and it's it's that. Pinnacle you can quote that, it; it's, it's so yeah. instantly quoted. I think there's some good scenes, but I don't I, I don't agree with it, it being renowned for being one of the best action films. It's certainly one of Michael Bay's best films. Well, that's true. I'm not a fan of Michael Bay's stuff, and this is probably up there as one of his best, if not his best film. So I did enjoy it. And again, you've got Sean Connery being you know very charismatic, um, Nicholas cage of course so there's and michael michael bean you know there's you know a great a great cast in there but um, he's michael bean's brilliant in the rock i think yeah see, i, I the, like him. The, the scene when he's in the the shower scene and the seals are obviously come through the floor and uh ed harris is he's got the higher ground and it's just that sort of standoff of that's a good i cannot scene. get that order that's 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 like proper tension and then obviously when the, the shooting happens it's like like proper stakes like you do not know what's going to happen and you actually fear for all these sort of navy seals type thing i think you do think michael bean might make it through the film um mm. for some reason but yeah it's well probably spoilers because, but probably it's, because it's, it's good the actor he was at the time wasn't it? it's obviously coming off a of terminator etc you kind of think well, well this, this guy's obviously he's obviously i mean he's going to be a main character and then I, you know was this one of his last major big hollywood films because i feel like he kind of disappeared after this mm. like he kind of got sort of sidelined he'd stopped getting, he sort of stopped getting a lot of big roles but anyways uh we'll move on terminator 3 rise of the Sh- machines i watched that and that was also a let's watch a film that i suspect is actually bad but i remember kind of liking it in the cinema but no it's actually pretty bad um, i would give it a two out of five i really not a fan of it i think um i think a couple of the action scenes are are, are pretty good like that long chase sequence maybe is the is the best um talk to the hand the dialogue is atrocious the characterization i'm not a fan of is it nick stahl um the john connor mm. character in it claire danes i think she's danes, she's, in it. she's okay. i think the cast i think the cast okay i think they're I think fine they're... for what they're given but i think as a yeah. story as a concept it's it's naff and the, pro- the problem for me i know terminator 2 we can argue about this before steve terminator 2 did it was the start of the parody army yeah. in terms of terminator it, it, it gets really away wasn't. with it because it otherwise it's a fantastic film yeah it wasn't that egregious in it and you could probably you could argue that it's it's just him becoming more human than and spending time with john right but anyway that aside this for me is the first of the the parody army this is this is when it totally cements as the parody army and it was just a uh, parody army sorry um so, and it just it was just so bad yeah, yeah. not a fan of that film i'm going to move on and Deep Blue C2, I'm going to spend zero pretty much time on this. It's a <laughs> two out of five, a film that got made in 2018. Uh, and I think from, I've not seen Deep Blue Sea in so long, so I can barely remember mm. it. But speaking to my, my friend, that, my co-worker that gave me the DVD, uh, it was a straight-to-DVD film. 
and was made pretty much with the same plot apparently as the first film so they've maybe modernized it slightly there's some really stupid um logic in this film characters they're clearly just to die um and yeah some sort of poor writing and uh i'd say at points as well it's a bit harsh but the acting isn't the best but yeah what do you expect from a straight to dvd film so that, that's you know it met my expectations but i would still say it's a two out of five some of the set design and things like that looked kind of cool there was some actual shots looked all right so it wasn't awful in the the truest sense but it certainly wasn't by any stretch a good <clears> film uh, so but the capiche but just just so i've got the the sort of context here so deep blue c2 a direct to dvd sequel is it the same score as Thor Love Love and Thunder? Well, I, I mean, everyone's, <laughs> everyone's got their own different people reviewing it. I mean, I can I can give Deep Blue Sea 2 a couple of points that worked, you know, for me. There was I was able to watch the full thing and stuff like that. I wouldn't say it is a one star the way that I would mm. with Mortal Kombat Annihilation, which is just excruciatingly poor. Um, so yeah, I would say that's a two out of five. Two more. I've seen Eurovision Song Contest, Story of Fire Saga. Now, I know you guys, Steve and Scott, covered this previous in a podcast, so there's not much more for me to say. Um, I don't know what you rated it when you gave it. I, I would give it a three out of five, um, just purely because there's points that are really funny. I don't mm. think it's consistent. It's a little overly long. I think the the fact that they capture the Eurovision so well is something to be commended like the the, the passion that's been into it getting the glitz the glamour the cheese all of it kind of done really well the songs are actually really good yeah. and like you know the actual performances i think are overall decent like obviously a few dodgy accents here and there and i suppose it's it, i think for me it's it could have shaved off 20 minutes or so it might be a bit tighter um because i wasn't laughing all the time there was bits that i was just a bit like okay maybe move on but there's a couple of great sections there's a section that's like um this sort of sing song along or something or sing along thing where they're mm. in this big fancy house at one of the, the the contestants and they have actual um previous eurovision song contest winners yeah. and 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 uh, contestants in there singing this kind of medley of songs like a, a sort of like a dance off but for singing it's it's really cool and and uh, for anyone who's a big Eurovision fan this film is probably like a five or a four star and I like real enjoyment comes from the from actually seeing what makes so the Eurovision so compelling I think they've captured most of it on screen I think so yeah Steve did you notice the bit when they're driving towards obviously where the Eurovision's been held and they're, <laughs> they're clearly in they're clearly in Edinburgh, driving on the pebble streets. They turn down a road, and then at the end of it, it's the hydro in Glasgow. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a couple of... Also, yeah. if you know Edinburgh, that route makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> <laughs> I have to start off yeah. Glasgow Airport, but it's called the Edinburgh Airport. If you, if you know the area, it's... How, how did he get there from there to there in that time taking that yeah yeah but that that adds to the clarity for me what i have i've been re-watching father ted and just very quickly they obviously had that episode the eurovision song contest episode um with my lovely pony there's a joke yeah. in that that is funnier than father ted but i think they've clearly used similar uh, sort of along the lines so that in, in father ted they borrow the song they're, they're they hear a song and they're like, oh, we could use that. And then I, th I can't remember. I, th I can't remember if it's Dougal explaining to Ted that it's essentially uh, 
you know, we could use the song. And he's like, no, we'll get caught. He says, no, actually, didn't you hear the writer, the singer, the production crew of the song? They all get killed. Everyone who knew about the song is dead. Everyone. <laughs> so they're able to use it and not get caught. And obviously the, the joke is kind of used in the film, essentially. Uh, yeah. I don't know, we're spoiling maybe a bit. There's a section in the film that an entire, um, your main your main leads, Will Ferrell, uh, they they fire saga they 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 didn't make it into the competition, but the winners and the ones that actually have are all in one place and f- without going into it, <laughs> essentially they're all somehow disposed of, and uh, and it's it's so funny and that kind of like that I like that that those little moments are really good that um, you can kind of see have taken it from that. I think they, I think the is it Rachel McAdams? Yeah, Rachel, she she's it? fantastic, she's, she's and I think she she sang. I've read into it. She sang quite a fair bit. They actually met, yeah. Like so, it's real fair play to her. Actually, Rachel McAdam and is really I, great in this film. I kind of there was a so obviously there's the dynamic where she's obviously she's obviously like pining over Will Ferrell. She, yeah. You know she wants that relationship, but there, there was actually a point in the film where it's obviously meant to be like a comedy and stuff. But I genuinely felt sorry for her. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like, I genuinely felt sorry for her, and it was like I shouldn't be feeling like this in a fucking Will Ferrell movie called Eurovision Song Contest, but I was. It was I like, think. Well, that's wow. where it works, though. It try. It's not. It's, it's a difficult one because clearly a comedy, but it is. It's a love story as well, and it works. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of nice emergence of the two. I actually, think the character interplay is really good. I think the. They obviously do the whole thing where like it's meant to be in Iceland and therefore no one's sure. <laughs> this running joke that they're not even sure if they're brother and sisters because there's you know, this kind of <laughs> thing, you know. Uh, is that your sister? I don't know. Possibly. We don't know. Um, so that's quite funny. Um, but yeah, and uh, of course you get Pierce Brosnan doing a Icelandic accent that I know you guys commented on that before. Um, I, I like seeing Pierce Brosnan. He looks very handsome. Uh, <laughs> it's like my god i think they actually joke about it he's saying how ridiculously handsome he is in the film like it stands out <laughs> no it's like it's really it's, it's one of those films where i tuned out a little at points um but if it was tighter i think actually i would really i would and i'd recommend it to anyone who likes the eurovision song contest so i would give it a three out of five for that i don't know what you guys i can't, remem- I can't remember i might have even been i might have been pushing towards a four I could see why. Like, uh, there was yeah. definitely good, definitely good bits about it. The last film, because I, I think I give it a three. It was fun. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I'll let you continue. So the last film I seen was actually a film released last year, Last Night in Soho. Um, so this was an mm. Edgar Wright film. film. Yeah. This yeah. is essentially a strange film to describe. It's kind of a horror, um, kind of a thriller. It's noir almost, noir, isn't yeah. it? It's, and it's and it's a comedy. Like the first mm. half is is a lot of comedy. So it's typical. Edgar Wright, he's able to blend genre really well. It's got a heavy um, reliance on the music and the time. It's sort of sixties. Well, the story that this character is able to travel back to the sixties, um, and uh, yeah, it's yeah, just really, really well told. Some great cast in there, um, and I yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think the last third, it's uh, it loses, it lost me a little. It got a little silly. And a little I think convoluted, it, trying to tie up things. Yeah, it's it definitely falls into the category of film that you re- you really can't stop watching it because see, as soon as you stop watching it, yeah, you're, you're gone, you've lost it. Yeah, and then that, that that's what it. And I think I probably agree with you. I think there was parts of it towards the end where I was like, um, this is this is 
my attention span's going here. And then when I would come back in, you know that obviously you kind of check your phone for something, you come back in. There was points of it was like uh, I don't know if I've missed something here because I was just totally lost. Yeah, but like the the performances like Thomas and Mackenzie, she plays the lead, and she's got this breathless innocence. <laughs> Her voice has got this kind of she's uh, you know she's kind of wide eyed kind of kind mm-hmm. of person, and she's obviously new to all of it, and um, she's trying to make it as a fashion student, and then keeps traveling back to the sixties, and then using the influences of the sixties in modern day when she's actually in her course, um, and sort of she's becoming this character that she's meeting from the her past half dreams visions things like mm-hmm. that it's a really weird film and uh, anya taylor joy plays the character in the past she's fantastic matt smith as well really well cast um diana rigg is in this film it's her last performance right before she died i think she died right after production ended um so that's um for the for the bond fans that's another one to reason to check out in general it's it's a really well-made film and i think it just loses its tightness towards the end but otherwise a very very well uh aesthetically costumes visuals fantastic edgar wright is always an exciting filmmaker and i think he's done really well and i think it was written with him and is it christy wilson cairns uh she then went on to write 1917 so she's uh the writing is i think is really good some really good stuff in there so i would give it a four overall and that concludes my <laughs> look back section the epic i think we've covered everything i don't think there's anything more we've got to to go uh over we've definitely run for time so we will call it quits today guys thanks very much if you enjoyed this podcast check out our others on uh, the website k-a-p-w-s-h that's capiche.online and also check our soundcloud spotify apple podcasts and a few other services you may find us there as well and we've got reviews and things like that as well on the site so thanks again guys we will catch you next month for more film roundup uh, and we'll see you then bye-bye Football, yeah. football bias isn't getting in hey. the way of things. Well, also missing the Formula One, but you know, I think <clears> it <throat> might be over. Actually, I'm not sure. I've tried to stay what away race? from it. What uh, race is it? I think this is Hungary. It's Hungary. Usually, Hungary. It's usually a good race. Mm. I'm <clears throat> so out of touch with fucking sport. I, I had to take the leap and get now TV. Um, for the sports because when the old man passed my mum basically just fucking cancelled down Sky Yeah, but <laughs> I had a conversation literally had a face to face conversation with her and said listen I know you don't watch the sports right but I do I've got Sky Go so I'm going to not cancel them down and even at that I'll pay for them I'll literally set up a standing order and pay for them and then Two days later, try to watch a, one of the English Premier League games. It says your subscription doesn't support this. Contact her and I was like, Mum, did you cancel the sports? Yeah, don't watch them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, uh, uh, did you not see the convert? Uh, <laughs> I can hell, man. So I, 30, 34, 34 quid a month for, for the sports. So I might actually get back into just flinging on a. Um, 
uh, a Grand Prix and all that kind of stuff. Did you actually watch the Grand Prix? I watched Formula One. That would be the the three main ones. Would obviously be the football, whatever. If it was obviously any Scotland games or the English games, then golf would be golf's obviously kind of once in a blue moon, depending on what the the event is. Um, but no, I like the Grand Prix. Is good. I don't think I'm a. I don't think I was ever a Formula One fan where I would sit and like avidly watch it. But I quite liked the start. I liked it being on in the background. Aye. You know, following it and all that good stuff. But it can. You should watch. Have you watched Drive to Survive? The Netflix. No. Watch that. That's like a the the perfect distillation of the F one. Like the last three three seasons, pretty much. <clears throat> and it gives yeah. you an insight into all the different characters of the sport. Because it's yeah. got people who aren't interested in Formula One actually really interested. Like so many people have got into it that I've now spoken to because of it. It's kind no, of. I, did. Um, I was. I mean, I was into it. I was into it before that. Um, aye, I, aye. I just kind of. I just kind of fell away from it. Um, aye. Yeah, I would highly recommend it. It's quite addictive viewing, and they're short episodes. It's like forty minutes, mm. sort of thing. I I wouldn't even know who's I know obviously Hamilton's in there is um is it still um so the main the main rivalry now Hamilton I heard the, I think I heard his name there as if he's going to be pole position or something like that for mm. this race but his car's not been as good so he's more like best of the rest kind of thing than now um the actual main title rivalry is between the Red Bull and Ferrari and it's Max Verstappen leading by a fair po- a few points now and Charles Leclerc. Is Leclerc. The, Leclerc, aye. He's, Mon- he's, he's, he's French, but Monagasque is from Monaco, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a nice wee guy. I think he's really good. He's just been very unlucky, but he's also made a few like crucial mistakes this season, so he's kind of lost a lot of points. But Alex, so is, he, is he Red Bull? No, he's Ferrari. Ferrari. Um, so is, it, is, it, is, it still, is it still kind of falling into that trope of... It doesn't really matter who the driver is. It's kind of the. It's always going to be that way. Yeah, it's a team sport in a sense. Well, it's a weird sport because your your rival driver is is your usually your teammate. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but there's a team element with the engineers and the cars and the engine and stuff like that. So it's a very strange. Who was Hamilton? Was it? It wasn't Forsberg, was it? Or was it uh, Ros- uh, Rosberg? Rosberg was it, was it not him and Hamilton that oh. were both Mercedes, and then they two were like kind of going at it. Ah, bitter, bitter really awkward. Yeah, it was just really awkward. They were like childhood friends, so there's pictures of them mm. like they would travel together and race together in go karting and stuff like that, and then they get into Formula One roughly around the same time, I think, maybe a year or two difference. And um, I, they obviously became teammates, and Hamilton was the one that dominated. But Rosberg got one season on him, and then retired the day after, which I love. <laughs> it's just like, oh, <laughs> there you go. Fuck might, you. Uh, might drop. 